0: episode 13 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. So I could do my usual intro and describe what you're going to get from this episode, but who are we kidding? It's three hours with Aaron Fields. I know that he wouldn't consider that to be significant, but I do, and I know that you do too. I hope this is something you can return to many times and take notes from. This was pretty special and a distinct pleasure. I'm very grateful and pleased to bring you Aaron Fields. Hey, Aaron, it's Scott.
1: Hey, how's it going, pal?
0: I'm well, man. Thanks. And thanks for taking the time to do this. So your website, nozzleford.com, the bio offered by fire engineering that accompanies the announcement of your award last year and your opening lecture of the program. They all do a really great job of describing your fire service origin and your ethos. And I'm going to add those links to the episode for people to access. But I'd like for us to delve a little bit deeper. And I'd like to start with family structure and upbringing. So let's begin there.
1: I always kind of like to joke that that uh, I'm the prototype American family or what the American family could be uh, in the sense that my mother divorced my biological father prior to knowing she was pregnant and ended up, when I was nine months old, marrying my dad, the, the guy that took over parenting. and is the the individual that I refer to as my father. The year was seventy two and that's relevant because their relationship was their marriage is interracial and, you know, I don't remember if it's sixty eight or sixty seven. It's somewhere right in there where legally on the on the you know, it was a blue law, but legally those marriages were not legal on a federal level. It, or at least that's my understanding of it when I've read the the laws and, and you know that's not a lot of time. You know, and I think one thing on a social level, you know, away from the fire service is how long ago was that? When we talk about especially in the United States when we talk about the civil rights movement and 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 all those kinds of things, we think of it, it it's 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 almost thought of as being well, oh so long ago. It's like in my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean in my lifetime that these aren't long ago issues and they're clearly not gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're still working at it. Is is there progress being made? Of course. But, you know, the 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 world still has the the bias and the prejudice and the social conditioning and the things that people don't even recognize that they carry.
0: And it changes forms.
1: And it changes forms. And I I do think, I mean, I you know, we we, we had an African American president. I mean that I I frankly never thought that would happen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um and uh so you know we are making progress but we also just had uh you know people carrying a swastika marching in the streets which for the record is treason. That's more treason than it is taking a knee at a football game frankly. Yeah. Um you know one social I mean we the United States is a, has never been this you this form of unity it's always been one of dissidence and conversation but one of those actions is literally treason and one of them is protest and there is nothing more patriotic than taking a lump because you don't agree with something in an effort to make it better for the place that you live you know whether or not you personally find it tasteful or distasteful isn't always the choice that's not the point but anyway So I grew up in a neighborhood. My parents moved into a neighborhood in Seattle, which was kind of at the time the only real neighborhood available to uh, an interracial couple. And uh, I was raised in, you know, one of the zip codes that according to the U.S. Census for for years and years was one of the most diverse in the country. So my neighbors, for example, I had Jewish neighbors across the street, Tongan neighbors to one side, Japanese neighbors to the other side. Vietnamese, you know, multiple versions of Chinese as far as linguistics go. You know, you had Mandarin, you had Cantonese, you had some dialects, and you know, just really, really mixed up. And they, to the point that there was really no majority. It was just a group of people, uh, and it was unique. I mean, it was, you know, working class. Where in the in the couple of blocks I was in was very working class, and then you went down the hill a little bit, and it turned into. A shooting gallery, and you know gangs and the, the the whole nine yards. So that was kind of the the neighborhood that that I grew up in, and and my experience has always been one of never being the majority. I mean, I was just teaching a class in Denver area, and this one firefighter, and she's from Aurora, and another another firefighter from Denver, and I were kind of off the side having a conversation at a break, more or less, and. She was talking about she was reading some studies that were coming out of some different places talking about you know inherent and acquired diversity and inherent is you it is obvious you are different than the majority on whatever terms and then acquired is when you for whatever reason have a social setting that gives you the perspective the difference is is one can hide like when people see me they make a real safe assumption about you know, whether they recognize it or not, about where I'm from, what my family even looks like. So I can pass through areas without notice, but I am paying attention. And the way that I view the world comes through this really diverse lens. And what that did was, I think, I mean, my parents and I have talked a lot about it. I think what that did is it, it almost hardwired me to look for cause to look for what it is instead of the symptom. And I don't mean that in a negative context necessarily. What is it that everyone is looking for? And there is a few things. And the way that they verbalize and exhibit and all those things might be different based off their cultural backdrop. The other thing that it did was language. Language was a big deal because... When I went over to my neighbor's house, you know, and we were sitting down to have lunch because I was playing with the neighbor kid, I sat down to homemade sushi and miso soup and uh, mijuko couldn't speak English. She spoke Japanese exclusively. So all that interpretation was through the kid. And then the n- other neighbors, you know, they spoke Tongan, which when they had a birthday party, they had a birthday party just like you and I have had a birthday party, but it took the cultural backdrop of a bird, So, it, you know, all of these things contributed to kind of my, I think, love of seeing principal and not worrying so much about the guys that the principal is wrapped up in. And it really, really hardwired me uh, for language. And that then later translates because I I end up not being a great student. Um, was definitely not cut out for university, at least at that point. And So I I had a trade and I I went to work in the trades. I got out of high school a year early. Um, It's still kind of up for, (laughs) up for debate whether or not I technically graduated from high school. I mean, I have a college degree now, so I think that trumps it. But I mean, I went to my, (laughs) my vice principal when I was in 11th grade and I'm like, at the end of 11th grade and I'm like, Hey, I'm looking at this stuff. I, 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 you know, I think I only need one more class and it's, it's offered the second semester of of uh, next year. And he's like, if I sign you off, will you not come back? I mean, that's <laughs> literally what he said. And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I had to go, you know, while I was doing my vocational training and, and take the equivalent, but, but that was college, so.
0: Were you challenging of professors oh. and teachers, of principals?
1: Yeah, I mean, so typical of human beings and especially pe- kids of that age is, fuck, what am I doing this for? I know what's right. I don't need all this. And my parents were so big on reading that, you know, we didn't watch a lot of television. In fact, very little. Uh, it was my my parents would give you a book. I was 11 or 12 and they gave me an, some excerpts of Marcus Aurelius, Brilliant. you know, meditations. And, and, and I read it. And, and then we sat out and we talked about it. So my parents are two of the best read, most educated people I know, and neither of them have college degrees. It was all self. They realized that, man, <laughs> the battle to make me conform to school wasn't worth it. They figured that as long as they kept me from getting involved in stuff that's really life challenging, um, and which they did, I mean, my parents were big on discipline, but, you know, they didn't sweat a D plus because at home I was reading, you know, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And we were talking about it. So my education, they, they were like, well, he'll find out whatever it is. And I can remember them saying it's something that I repeat to my kids all the time, which is I want you to know what work looks like. I want you to know what work looks like and be able to do work because if you can do some basic math and read and you know how to do work, everything else is possible. It it might be more difficult, but it is more possible.
0: And know why it's important.
1: Yeah, why it's important. They wanted literacy and they demanded it. But, you know, once I found a vocation and I did a year of training in that and then an an additional year, which would have been my senior year of high school, and then went to work and, and worked You know, at a certain point was like, you know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this trade for the rest of my life. And by this point, met the woman that is my wife. And I was done kind of being a a 'er ne'er-do-well. You know, I was like, I got to do something now. This is is serious. And, you know, in in answer to your first question, yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of my high school. Um, I hadn't done a whole lot of reading because it disturbed me. Uh, And I didn't understand in World War II how Germany could look the other way while Hitler rose to power. You know, the naivety of youth saying, well, it's, it's as simple as this. And, you know, it clearly isn't. There was many, many reasons that those things happened. But my parents were like, well, before you pass judgment on a whole group of people in a moment in time that you weren't there for, maybe you should read this stuff. And it's not absolving people of their responsibility, but at least you can discuss it articulately. And so I, I spent like six months reading all these different books on, or maybe four months reading all these different books on World War II. Well, here I am in my 11th grade year. There's a it's in social studies. We happen to be talking about World War II, and the um, the teacher's gone. There's a she's she's been she's gone for like a week. So we have this sub. So, And she starts saying stuff and it's wrong. Literally, it's wrong. I mean, the high school that I was, went to still uses books that I used, which, which blows my mind that people are okay with that. So anyway, I just kept raising my hand and I was like, that's not right. This is what it was. That's not right. This is what it was. And finally she says, do you want to teach this class with kind of a snippy approach? Because You know, I I wasn't probably as mannered as I am today. And I said, yeah. So I stood up and I talked about for 20 minutes what had happened kind of in a chronological order. And at the end of the class, she dismisses. She said, that was really good. Where did you learn all that stuff? And I looked at her and I said, books. I learned it in books. You can too. And she's like, that's (laughs) great. Go to the principal's office. (laughs) You know, know, that was kind of my disposition.
0: So you learned really early on that authority and status and place doesn't matter. It's the truth. It's the genuine base knowledge that matters.
1: Yeah. And it's gotten me into a pinch. At times, it still does especially in the fire service, where in a lot of places, including my own, for years and years, and I think in my own fire department, it's changed quite a bit in the last few years, much for the better. But it was like old British naval tradition, like your battalion chief was master and commander, and there were rules, but they only applied to you. And, you know, that your officer almost had this air of being parental. And, uh, I'm going to be 48 here in a couple of days. I've been married for 25 years. I don't need a goddamn parent. I need an officer, you know? And so when guys have in a couple of times, only a few, but they've come in and, and started acting like they're, <laughs> they're the parent. I'm like, um, Hey, this is a place of employment. You're my, you're the boss, you're the, you're the Lieutenant or you're the captain, but you're not my mom and dad. And frankly, I don't want to hear about your marriage advice at two years. I've got more experience in this than you. And I recognized, and my parents hammered home to me, that leadership isn't a rank. It's a series of behaviors. And good leaders exist at every level. And good leaders know where their sphere is and where the other sphere is. And they cross over and they cover each other's back but it's okay to step out of the way. I mean, the captain, the, I've been really lucky in my last two company officers, my Lieutenant John Cameron and, and Matt Talbot is the captain I'm working with now and that they are very much the company officer, but they're also totally comfortable having conversations and deferring, going, hey, what do you think of this? And I like that, let's try it. Or what do you think of this? Because this is my take on it. Well, let's do it and see what is the better option. And that is what leaders are supposed to do. And I and so my parents hammered that home. And they also hammered home that, you know, and this partially comes from their experience, multiracial in the era that they were in, which is you have the right, when appropriate, to stand up for yourself to anyone at any time. Human right, not opportunity, right. And in the modern world, we confuse when people always say, well, it's my right to have a boat. No, no, it's you have an opportunity to have your boat. Rights don't, you know, rights are very specific things. And so anyways, yes, got me into a pinch and it still occasionally does not so much, but as much as it used to, but
0: Nowadays, do you choose to sometimes cede the battle to win the war? And do you think people should try and strive for that?
1: I think that what I strive to do now is to use kind of hopefully what I've matured into and will continue to mature into, which is the ability to have those conversations minus rage and angst. To be able to have those conversations without it ever becoming an emotional conflict because if you have those conversations you can have them and people can go oh shit you know what you're right i'm sorry and also when you're having that conversation you recognize your piece in it i mean when i was a young guy i mean i was like man the world is attack it's always attacking and it's like well it was always attacking because i was attacking instead of trying to be mature what i try to do today and try to model for my kids Because my kids very much have, you have the right to stand up to anyone at any time. And leadership is this. And you need to be accountable for your mistakes, which are all things that were hammered to me from my parents. What I'm trying to teach them, in addition, is what I've learned because of my own personality of, you know, you you really do get back what you put out. And there is a time and a place to fight. But if every time you're fighting, it has no weight, you know, you need to be able to escalate your response. So for me, you know, there's no win or lose. It's on a continuum. So what I've tried to do is develop the ability to have the difficult conversation and instead of avoiding it.
0: But as a a young male in the time you were brought up in on the street, you were brought up in with the knowledge that you were brought up with. You were also privy to behind the curtain and the masks of people's true views because they made an assumption of you, let their guard down, so to speak, that they normally wouldn't do in public.
1: I got a funny joke for you. Yeah. I mean, n- not really. That's what I heard all the time. Oh, I First see. people okay. wouldn't know. I-, I got a joke. Let me tell you a joke.
0: Yeah. I'm not racist, but here's this joke.
1: Yeah, I'm not racist. Here's the story. I'm not racist. I have a, a friend that's African American. Like, that doesn't mean, you know, uh, and then go on to some visceral tirade. The flip of it, though, that no one group is absolved of race issues. It's different, but it's there. And, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I heard, well, Fields isn't really a white boy. He he doesn't count. He's not really a white boy. And when you're nine and you want to fit in with all the older kids, you're like, oh, that's a compliment. But when you're 48, looking back on what was said, you're like, holy shit the beauty of this whole thing is what my kid said the other day. He's like, I don't even get any of this. We're all the same race. doesn't make any sense to me. We're all the same race. And I'm like, yep, that's right. And for me, that was like, you know, with the social setting of today specifically to hear this 10 year old say that like people are crazy, dad, we're all the same race. We're all on the same team. Our ancestors just went different places. They all started in the same place, and then they walked around. <laughs> I mean, that's really what he said. And over the time, they adjusted to that environment. I don't understand. And I was like, God, yep. And so I think we are making progress. But you know, when you're an adult and you you think back to what my own experience, I mean, it. You know, I'm I'm very much a Euro Anglo American, but I have a different coding than average but not it's not unique there are other people like it
0: what kept you from staying in the anger and brewing in the injustice what allowed you to transcend that because you could have gone a completely different route
1: just age age and recognizing that if i really want to be effective in making the changes that i want to make that i can't make them from rage i I don't think that rage and, and sense of injustice are bad I think that they're often a motivator and make no mistake about it. I mean, when I hear a lot of the stuff that's going on, my, my blood boils, you know, Mm -hmm. my gut instinct is to, okay, you want to be an asshole? Well, I can be an asshole too, but that's only going to combat the other assholes. That's not going to help those people that are somewhere in the continuum that are just like, oh man, I never thought of that, which is usually why this kind of stuff is going on. It's, I never thought of that because they've never had that experience. That doesn't mean the experience isn't real.
0: What was your exposure to the fire service? Was it early on were you encouraged to follow in your dad's footsteps?
1: No, I was not encouraged at all. Um, neither was my brother. Uh, my exposure was um, for a for part of my youth. My dad was uh, drove city bus, uh, and then he got in the fire service. He, he joined Seattle Fire. And um, so for my brother, his exposure was—he's you know, five years younger than me, so his, his exposure started— at a younger age, mine was, I don't remember how old I was, but you know, I wasn't an infant. Um, so yeah, I mean it was kind of two major things that, you know, led me to kind of want to do it. And one was a house fire in which, um, I watched the neighbor's house burning and everything that she'd worked two jobs for her whole life burn up. And up the hill comes engine 28 and engine 13, and I rode on 28s for years, and the latter 12 came too, just for the record. Um, got to give the truck a little bit of credit. They were there, and my dad was on engine 13. I ride on engine 13 today. In fact, uh, on his shift, um, he's still on the job. He's in the fire marshal's office uh, because he got pulled off the line a few years back because he got cancer. Uh, so he'll never come back to the line but his health is good so that's but I got I'm working in the very spot shift and each of our positions on our rigs have numbers it's called a debit number so I have the same debit number as he did um he was the driver and I'm the tailboarder but it's the same number and so uh they came up the hill And I can remember the neighbor looking at the neighbors whose house was burning and they're going to work. And she says something to the effect of, don't worry, honey, the fire department's here now, everything's going to be okay. And off the rig, jump these people. And some of them I'm new and dad was included in that. And I was like, holy shit, this is, this is unbelievable. And then another one though, I mean, I know that EMS is unpopular in some circles. Uh, we had a, a, a busy street kids were crossing the street and a 10-year-old girl got hit by a, a you know a late 70s cadillac and got got smeared you know um and i can remember coming out from playing hoops because i heard the in the neighbor's backyard i heard the screech and i heard someone start screaming and that was her sister and uh who was still on the curb and watched the whole thing and i come out and this girl is a mess and there's other adults standing there, the neighbors, and they're all just jaws open, frozen. And I'm not sure how, but I just was like, oh shit. And I took off running and ran over to my house and got my dad. And I remember him opening the door and going, hey, what's going on? And I'm, I mean, he must have looked at me and known because by this point, the world's kind of hitting that surreal, like, oh, can't move, can't think, you know? Um, stress overload, and because uh, there was, it was a mess. We'll leave it at that. And uh, I remember saying something, and I can, I just remember his face going, and it like it clicked, and he's like, okay, and he walks out and he starts doing his thing. I and I had told two adults. I remembered this before I took off running. I had told two people go call nine one one because I can remember in school. When they did the little fire visits, them always saying, "Tell two people to call 911 because one of them won't." You know, I just reacted on gut instinct or, or gut pre-planning, and um, he he did his thing, and up the hill come the same rigs, and they show up, and he looks at them, and he speaks a foreign language, and they go, "Okay," and they take over. And he steps back out, you know, and they were all like, oh, hey, Lee, what's going on? And he's like, Blah blah blah, blah 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 And to me, I didn't know what they were saying. And today I know it was a short report and, you know, giving vitals and all this stuff. And then we he's like, OK, let's go, Aaron. And he takes me back in. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years, I, I, probably a year, he kept checking in. And, I, I, you know, how you doing? Yeah, anything, you know, because that girl didn't make it. And that mess was brain matter. And I can remember going, Dad, do you think she's going to make it? He's like, oh, yeah, probably. And then when I'm like 20, I'm like, remember that girl that got hit? And she lives, and he looks at me, and he goes there, and she didn't live. (laughs) She was dead right there. I'm like, well, you told me. And he's like, yeah, a 13-year-old doesn't need to know. So, no, I was never encouraged. Um, It was something that my brother and I found on our own. Um, I think the fact for him and I, because he and I have talked about it, a lot of it had to do with how involved he was and i had the, the i had the flip right i had the perspective of when he was a bus driver versus when he was a firefighter and how much more uh, he was around and how much more he was involved and and all of that and in fact when i got hired with seattle so i got hired somewhere else first and when i got hired with seattle that was the first time that we'd really ever talked about i mean i'd asked him advice on fires and you know, what do you think, dad, you know, when you first get hired, what's the, what's, what's your biggest pieces of advice? And he gave me those, but he never really talked about how he felt about us getting in. And I can, I mean, when I got hired with Seattle, he's like, you know, I'm really proud as a dad that you and your brother have followed me into this line of work. He's like, it's clear that it had an impact. And that's cool because this job is fundamentally about service. It's like, but also, as a dad, I'm terrified because I know what you potentially will have to deal with. He and my mother both, when I got hired with Seattle, they both, in that same conversation because my mom was there too, uh, expressed the fact that when I was working in another place, they were much more uncomfortable. They're like, we're much more comfortable with you in Seattle. And I'm like, really, why? And my dad and my mom were both like, because we know the people that you're going to be working with, or at least some of them. It was not something that was encouraged. I mean, my dad never took a single picture of me as an infant in a smoky helmet. I never had little baby bunker gear. It was,
0: Which seems to be pretty it, much the norm now.
1: It is a little bit weird. I, as a parent, I don't want my kids to do what I want. I mean, whatever. If the kids want the bunker gear, awesome. Get it for them. But God damn it, as an adult, don't act like a child. Everyone's like, oh, I want a legacy. I want a legacy. The legacy that you want is a human being contributing to the world in a better way than you did more effectively. You want to raise a little person that whatever it is they do, they become really good at it and they love it. That's what I want. If my kid wants to be a goddamn sculptor, I don't care. I just want him to be the hardest working, most disciplined, growth oriented. Happiest. Happiest. Yeah, if they do this, awesome. If they don't, awesome. I don't want to let my passion become theirs unless it truly is theirs. And for me and my brother, or my brother and I, excuse me, I feel like we found it honestly because we were never encouraged. When we were testing, we were never encouraged. It was always, hey, do you think there's something else you might want to do? In fact, my parents, when we when I first said I wanted to test, they said absolutely not because it was right after the Pang fire, and like they were like, we're not having any part of this. No way, and that Pang fire has some personal connection, and and my dad was on it, and we thought he was one of the ones that died for about five hours. So I mean, it was just very fresh, and they were like, no, no way. And a few years later, it you know. I finished up a few things that I was doing and, and then took the test.
0: So it wasn't something that they encouraged. They weren't necessarily thrilled about it, but I I get the feeling that they didn't discourage you.
1: They did not discourage it. They, they encouraged me to find what it is for me. In fact, I will tell you point blank. My mother is not stoked. She's proud of my brother and I, she told me that the other day, but she's still not stoked that we do this, nor is my dad they like it that we're happy and that we're both relatively successful in it and that we're doing good is what she said. You're doing good, but it was never discouraged though.
0: No. And I think each of us as parents can uh, empathize with that side of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Did you complete post-secondary schooling before getting hired?
1: I did. Yes. So I graduated high school a year early. Um, my junior year I was in a vocational education program. And I continued that, and I took that one class uh, uh, in college while I was at the vocational program, and that was it. And then I went to work in a trade, and I worked in the trade for a number of years and then kind of bumped out of the trade into something else for a couple of years that was skilled labor but wasn't the exact same thing. And though my my shop was not union, they followed to a T the union Model. So you went, you you had to, you know, do the same skills, and they base their raises on the union scale. So uh, I got right to the point where I would have journeyed, and then that company was having some financial problems. So I got laid off, went to do something else, did something else for a couple of years, and decided, you know, I, I got to go to school. I was married, and it was, I got married pretty young, and I went back to school when I was 23. I had been married for a year, and went to school and yeah, graduated on the Dean's list, you know, the the whole nine yards and actually went on to a master's program, master slash PhD program, and then dropped out of it because I had realized that my direction was not going to be academia.
0: What was the focus of your studies?
1: So I studied uh, history and I studied um, technically East Asian studies, but with a focus in uh, linguistics, historical and cognitive. I'm like a credit short of actually also having a linguistics... I I think I'm two credits a class, uh, a phonetics class short of a linguistics degree, and instead my second degree had a linguistics focus. So history and and linguistics was kind of my
0: my thing. They could probably uh, do you a solid and throw you an honorary at this point. (laughs) Maybe. 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 (laughs) They're like, don't come back! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How did that academic focus shape you as an instructor?
1: Yeah, it did. History is a beautiful subject. And people are like, oh, it's fucking boring. The way we teach it is boring. If you like fiction, then you like history, because history fiction is based on history. Like, all the greatest adventure stories in the world, all the greatest political thrillers in the world have already been written by real people. And I think that the way that we teach history is boring. On this date, no, 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 the date's not what's important. What's important is the context and what was going on. And let, let me give you an example. When I went to my vocational education training, I had two choices, two choices that were legitimate for me, welding and offset printing. So like running printing presses and doing all the preparatory work. I went printing and I went printing for two reasons, three reasons really. Um, one of them totally not legitimate, but the the reason of a uh, of a sixteen year old uh, guy, which is, first off, the college that had the printing had a lot of really good looking women, which <laughs> as a sixteen year old up there, that you know, it, that was one of the reasons. But the real reason was that it was easier to get to the the printing college than the welding college. But the other thing that fascinated me about printing is the historical connection. So I'd been reading history for forever. And for the record, the printing went really well. The getting dates didn't go so well, so <laughs> it it didn't really matter what. It is. And knowing what I know now, I might have went welding because you know that's something that I've picked up in later life. But part of my reason for choosing printing was one the ease of getting there from the high school. But the second one was is printing is the reason
0: for freedom and human rights. It's the most important invention ever invented.
1: Exactly until the printing press. Nobody was literate. Well, only the royalty, the aristocracy, or the clergy. Literacy was the realm of those people, and they held all the cards because they were literate. And all of a sudden, people like you and me said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute here. I got this machine, and I can put stuff out even though it's grammatically a mess. I can put it out in such a rapid pace that all of a sudden we can exchange ideas faster than ever before. And – we can communicate about things and write things down. And, and by writing things down, we start to formulate a mental construct. And all of a sudden, boom, the Magna Carta. And you know, human rights is, is a human thing, not as a economic. I mean, because that's history. If humans were based on your economy, where you were at, who's the rich, who's the poor? And that's the same conversation we're having today. The reason I like history is because it proves to you that nothing is original and that human beings, those base level things. I mean, I started by saying, one of the things that I always look at when examining anything is what does everybody do the same, not what they do different. You know, history teaches us that we're not going to be original. So just try to be good. And I, I like the humbling factor of reading about and understanding why people did certain things and just the profoundness of the potential of our species if we actually do things deliberately. So that's why I chose history. Linguistics was secondary. Um, and I think that because I grew up in a neighborhood that had, according to the US census, 63 languages within the, my zip code, I grew up listening to other languages. And it's always fascinated me. And I like semantics and I like grammar. And so I studied it because I was interested in it. And now having taught in every region in the country, I would say that if you know, I get asked often, how do we fix your fire department? the first thing you do is you fix your language you remove any ambiguity you remove any dialectical differences and you create a jargon a language in which is designed for a trade that's a technical term for a jargon and it's a, it's not a, a you know people are oh, we speak a different dialect well dialects share common words then they mean vastly different things. And so when I say something and you hear that common word, your brain goes to your meaning and I'm meaning something entirely different. Indirect attack is a great example. Flashover is a great example. Modern day UL flashover is in our books referred to as a backdraft. So there's ambiguity and the same words meaning different things lead to mass communication problems. So having taken languages apart and understanding cognitively what they do to the brain, I think that's been really something that I wasn't prepared for. If you were gonna ask me what my biggest surprise of the fire service is, it's that. How important that the language is. And and the further I get along in this process, the more that I recognize the need to start with that.
0: It's the bottom of the rabbit hole.
1: It's the bottom of the rabbit hole. That's a great way to put it.
0: You're not gonna understand the history that you're trying to describe, and you can't have a conversation until you're all speaking using the the right words.
1: Potato, 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 potato. And then in the fire service, once we say that three or four times, we just yell, fuck you, you suck, and then we leave, right? We don't actually sit down and go, well, why are you saying that? That's where it comes from, and you know, I studied what interested me, not what I thought was going to help me get a job. It wasn't, I'd already done vocational training, and I think it's awesome, and I think everyone should do some sort of it. I think we need to put vocational training back in public education because it is a priority. It is important and it isn't, as we would say today, there's a social stigma that it's dumb work. It's not, are you kidding me? Like electricians and builders and plumbers and all the other trades, there's nothing dumb about it. It's just not pushing decimal points.
0: It's all dumb work until it breaks and you can't fix it. And you need to call someone that knows yeah, how to do that. That's right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. We got enough business majors. Maybe we need a little fewer business majors. So I think, you know, my vocational training was critical because I learned it partially helped code how to put things together, right? This outline of how a trade takes their people through education and how there's an education and an application, education, application, and it's a continual ongoing process. One of my most influential teachers who Um, was this teacher named Mr. Wright, and he was a history teacher. And he did a lot of cool things. I mean, he was definitely the tough love teacher. I mean, like one of the guys in my class was destined to drop out of school. And so Mr. Wright would just come in and give him Saturday school for no reason, just you got Saturday school. And what I found out later, because I got to know him as an adult before he retired, was that he had gathered intelligence on every student that he had coming in. I remember him saying, gave him Saturday school all the time. And he's like, yeah, cause I knew where he was. I taught Saturday school. I knew where he was. He would come in. He ended up getting a B out of that class. And then next year dropped out of school and who knows where he's at today. But this teacher was awesome and he would teach history from present day backwards. He'd literally come in with a newspaper and this wasn't just off the cuff. He planned this stuff, but he would flip open the paper and start talking about this thing that happened. And then he'd trace it backwards through time. I mean, connecting Bosnia, Serbia to World War One, you know, instead of World War One to today. So anyway, my parents given me all these different books, a lot of which revolved around history. And then him. So I was like I love history. So I studied specifically, I mean it's it's ridiculous, right, as far as minutian. And uh, not incredibly, quote unquote, practical, but Mongolian history. And then I studied East Asian studies with a focus in linguistics and specifically historical and cognitive were the areas that I kind of did a lot in. And that linguistic love comes from, I know for a fact, listening to 63 distinct languages within three minutes of the firehouse that I worked in, which was the neighborhood firehouse that I grew up in distinct languages, not including dialects. And in hindsight, I think that the reason that the cognitive linguistics are so important to me is because there were so many different languages. The language was not as relevant as the way that it was organized and what it meant and did to your brain and how your lens of interpretation is filtered through your worldview and your worldview is imbued from your language. So when we draw political lines, really what we should be doing is drawing linguistic lines because language is what defines... I mean, the Chinese have had it written down in military doctrines for like 2,500 years, which is the way that you take over, conquer an enemy is you beat them down and then you move in native Han-speaking Chinese. And within three generations, the population will assimilate because... Indigenous Native men will marry Chinese women. They'll have babies. The babies will grow up speaking Chinese. Now the worldview comes through that lens. It's been done over and over. I mean, my family's name when they first came to America wasn't Fields. A friend of mine that is one of our more senior instructors, a guy named Nick Simon, is a member of the Kickapoo Nation. His family's name prior to cultural genocide attempts wasn't Nick Simon. One of the reasons that English has evolved the way it's evolved, and if you look back on it, is because it was isolated enough that when the French or whoever were swarming the English shores, the language was assimilated, and then there was a time of separation and instead of this just continual conquest. And so, um, you know, because typically speaking, the language of the aristocracy is the language of the conqueror. Mandarin. Mandarin isn't Han. It wasn't the first language spoken in that area. The Mandarins came out of Central Asia above what we think of as China, and they conquered. And then it became the language of the king. Hence the reason some of the Russian monarchs back in the day spoke French, not Russian. Really fascinating.
0: The same tact was taken with all of Canada, with the indigenous cultures and the residential school program.
1: Yes. Script. Genocide. It's cultural genocide. That's what it is. I mean, you've heard me use this example, but like the semantical meaning of things is super important. And, and the semantics changes and the language words change dramatically as things in culture change. And there's a primary definition and a secondary definition. And the secondary definition is the cultural one. So, for example, I mean, this is the analogy I always use in our books because our fire books take us to a certain point and then stop they don't go on to explain the wins and the whys and the hows for example efficient this is not my evaluation for the record because i know that some of the people that write books sometimes listen to these podcasts and then they call me and go how can you say that and i'm like i'm saying this as a linguist not as a firefighter so you know if i say efficient efficient has a secondary meaning in north america of good fast quick but also light and non-permanent, would you agree? It's an efficient use of your time.
0: Easy in the best way.
1: Easy and quick, it's the quick fix.
0: Yeah, people think it's the best way.
1: And that translates to the best because time is money, baby. Efficient food is fast food and it's the source of the gluttony that is killing us. Every major disease killing people in North America comes from gluttony, excess, too much and in the wrong type of stuff, but it's a sure fucking efficient to go through a drive-through. I mean, in fact, it's cheaper sometimes now than cooking for yourself, depending on what it is you're doing. I mean, that doesn't mean it's more effective because efficient foods eat quick, move on. I've never had efficient meals. I do effective. My parents did effective. It was slow and it was methodical, but the overall value gained because the secondary meaning of effective is permanent, slower for sure permanent and more holistic in its application of good. That's the secondary meanings to it. And so when people say you want to win the war, not the battle, so you're, that phrase speaks directly to this. I want to be effective. I want to be effective with my kids. They, they effectively know who I am and who I know who they are because we've had a lot of effective dinners. And we don't distract ourselves with, 30-second sound bites and effective use of water versus efficient use of water. And when we're talking about a few seconds one way or the other, but the permanence of one application over the other in the appropriate setting, in our books say, you know, 30-degree fog is efficient. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the effective way.
0: Or letting it burn because you don't want to run out of water because you only have so much in the tank.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> you either have the water to put it out or you don't. And if you do, hit it in the mouth and be done with it. So anyway, you know, the guy that wrote the 30-degree fog stream didn't write the books or make the equipment that came behind it. Lloyd Lehman says, I quote, when no life is in the building, comma, including firefighters. He and Peterson, it was an adaptation of shipboard firefighting, you know, compartment firefighting, in compartments in which the compartment and the box can never become part of the problem. It can never produce gas. There is no fire spread and it's not gonna vent, can't. And the fuels are limited. Our average fire today is a hoarder fire of 40 or 50 years ago. I mean, there's more pounds per square foot and there's more square feet. They're not hotter, there's more stuff and the heat release is faster. Again, a, a, a word thing. We don't want efficient use of water. We want effective use of water. You know, we're trying to create an environment that we're not trying to maximize the efficiency of water because we don't need to. We have a lot. And if we have a lot, we get water further away in larger volume, which means we're not in the middle of dealing with it. We're dealing with it downrange. And more water absorbs the same amount of heat faster with less steam produced and steam takes space and when steam's cool it's not a big deal but until it's cool it's a big deal or it can be a big deal don't
0: be stingy with the solution
1: don't be stingy with the solution and don't forget that you know i know your nozzle can do 16 things when you're sitting out in the drill yard but what you want is something that you pull the trigger and it does the same thing every time i love the fact that i was in a conversation with a guy that employs a very different technical attack model. He's like, well, the Marines know their rifle. They do, and they use the simplest fucking rifle they can that accomplishes the mission. They don't have 16 widgets and gadgets on their rifle. So if you're going to use that example, and also a Marine throws rounds downrange and removes the threat, there's no ambiguity. There's no chance of the fire rebounding, metaphorically. You know, when I'm teaching the class or, or sharing the information, people always go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what I mean. Then that's what we should say. I'm not perfect. I've gotten bit people. I've said something and people are like, Oh, and they interpreted it one way and t- sometimes very different than I intended it. Or they hear the part that they are most familiar with and ignore the other two sentences because in right then in that moment in time in their brain, their recognition between yes, see, see, I say that same thing. And then they miss the other two parts that all happens and so we have to continually be looking for better ways to express ourselves and and more effective and that's why training shouldn't be based around efficiency it should be based around effectiveness and you know when i get asked what can you do to change your fire department right now the first thing i say is straighten out your language to a linguist a jargon is a language designed for a trade and, w- and the fire service doesn't have one. We have jargons or dialects that are divided up based on region and generation. I mean, if you don't call the kitchen, the beanery, because you don't share that tradition with Seattle does, that's one thing. To have your little cultural idiosyncratic words is cool and interesting and lends insight into your history. But it's not a flow path, it's a gradient. Flow path is becoming is a jargon, and that's fine. The problem is is that in the 1890s, it was an air track, which was the same term. It's specifically talking about the pressure and heat gradient. And, you know, which one are you going to choose? Well, you know, I don't know. For me personally, I like citation and I like bibliographies. I like annotated bibliographies. I'm hesitant to come in and create a new word for something that already exists because it leads to confusion. I mean, there's four different working definitions for an indirect attack in the United States. Four different definitions. And so what we're speaking is dialects, which are deviations of a common language that have shared words that often have vastly different meanings.
0: And because you teach across North America, consistency of delivery of the program is paramount but you do adjust like, yes. things uh, per region.
1: Oh, absolutely. I take de- detailed notes when I've gone to a region. I, I mean, every night after I do a class, I mean, people are wondering why I'm not doing what happens in most classes, which are go out, drink beers and tell war stories. It's because I went back, I had dinner, I went back, I talked to the guys that or gals that were teaching with me. And tell me what went well, what didn't, you know, we talked through the the pro and the con, and then I go back to my, hotel room before I go to sleep and I take notes on the region and the class. And so before I go to an area, now I have a big enough library that I can refresh what is the common language and what areas is this region really good with and what aspects of the curriculum is more foreign. And so I can speed up or slow down the different sections based on, on that. Yeah. I mean, Jeff Shoup, who's a mentor of mine, and I were talking the other day, and you know, people are like, "Oh, you know, you got all this information." It's like I'm this information that I have is all given to me, and yes, I've made some adaptations to its organization, I've made some adaptations to its mechanics, uh, but it's all been given to me. That what I I feel like my contribution really is a little twisting and tweaking here and there, and some organizational, the designing of this information into an algorithmic formula. And the big thing, translation. I'm translating. And I'm translating experience to experience, your experience with what I'm trying to say. I'm translating language. I'm translating things that are foreign and new and things that are very familiar. But we need to keep treading over this material and rereading it because you never know how someone's going to say something. You might parrot something back to me, but use your own lens. And the way that you say it, even though I know the material, I'm like, Ooh, man, that's phenomenal. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to quote you there. And you'd be like, well, I'm quoting (laughs) you. And I'm like, well, I'm quoting so-and-so. So So I'm going to use your way of phrasing it because I think it is more effective at dissemination of the information. I'll give you another one. I don't care what mnemonic you use. I mean, you know me, and I think that despite some circles uh, that think I'm involved in it, I'm very much not involved in kind of the fire service educational realm. You know, I I don't really run in that circle. I have friends in there, and clearly I'm, I'm doing some sharing, but, you know, I'm kind of off On my own, and that's because of my personality, Uh, but also because I don't want to become part of the collective. I I, I don't want um, to only surround myself with my peers. I also want to surround myself with my critics. And I think we get spun up. I'm not a person that's going to get too concerned over what mnemonic you choose to use, as long as your use of a mnemonic is not obscuring the objective of the mission. And I don't care about slicers or dicers or or whatever, but as a linguist, when two thirds of the people that are hearing rescue is an action of opportunity. I mean, I've had conversations with the people that were kind of instrumental in the slicers mnemonic. I know what they're trying to say, but what people are hearing is something different. So my question, not as a firefighter, as a linguist, and as a person that is a firefighter that has had to choose different words because my own take on the word, there were semantical differences. I mean, I've changed my verbiage. I've made this same choice, which is at what point does your or my intent of saying something outweigh the effects? Because that sounds like ego. If rescue is not opportunistic, think about what that means. Hey, when you have a chance, could you take out the garbage? Hey, when you could get to it, right? That's the secondary meaning. And I know for a fact because somebody's going to listen to this and they're going to go back and they're going to say, you wouldn't believe what he said. Listen to both things. I know for a fact that is not what the people that wrote slicers are intending. But as a linguist, And as someone that looking at things from a cognitive perspective, I keep saying it linguistics and history are things that I read stuff on weekly. It fascinates me. And so what I'm saying is it's the wrong choice of word in my mind because of how often it's misinterpreted, how often you have to say, no, 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 no. What I meant was as a operational guideline, there should be no ambiguity in what was meant, right? So rescue is not an action of opportunity. It is the objective. And I don't think we should ever have to say to human beings that are involved in the fire service, no one is asking anyone to go on suicide missions. But we are saying that we are willing to take some risk. Despite what the safety first community is describing, burning to death is low on my to-do list. I don't need to be told, don't burn to death. That's not something I'm trying to do.
0: One of the things that stuck with me from you is that you said you wanted to have a long distance relationship with fire.
1: Yeah, long distance, like way off in the distance, like I'm putting it out before I'm there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not waiting to be in the middle of it. I think that what we should be saying is if we're gonna use that analogy, this is what your relationship with fire should look like. These are the things that you can do to keep able to go after the objective. And minimize the risk. But you, you cannot manage risk from fear. You manage it from competence and caution, or competence includes caution. And I have had classes that I've sat in all over at a national level, local level, department level, where they spend a lot of time telling me, don't die, don't burn up. No shit. Really? That's not something I want to do? Well, God damn it. I quit. Come on. It's patronizing. What we should be talking about is this is the objective. You know, this is what we're going to talk about. This is why we're talking about it. This is when we do these sets of tasks. And now how do we do them? Everything that we're doing should take that format, uh, whether it's training on a tactical or a technical level. It doesn't matter, strategy level, whatever. What is the mission? And and this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is when we would do it because context is critical. And now, how do you do it? Not how do you do it and just do what I tell you and now let's move on. That's not effective. That's efficient for a checkbox, but not effective for fire ground operations. You know, every fire officer in the world, every firefighter in the world would say, I want skilled, competent people. Very few people. There's maybe a few, but very few would be like, well, I want dumbasses that want to go on suicide missions.
0: Kamikazes get you one battle. Yeah,
1: exactly. And people don't commit completely (laughs) because nobody wants to die. We're hardwired for that.
0: So just to touch back on semantics, should instructors be paying more attention to the audience and their ears? Because things can change region to region. They can also change generation to generation. Really, the goal is to get the information into their minds and have it actually applied on the fire ground. Yeah. So taking ourselves out of it and always keeping in mind how they're interpreting it is really the key to instructing.
1: Yeah. And really with a semantical twist on that, are we instructing or are we sharing? You're absolutely right. And it's, it's the terminology that we use. You know, one of the things when people are learning and working through and becoming instructors with us, as I'm like, this whole educational thing is a two way street always. And you should actually be learning more from the events than they are because your level of refinement is higher. And so you're, your paradigm for your your lenses for interpretation, you can isolate that the foot was an inch out of place, not six inches out of place. You can recognize what is supposed to happen in this event and when it doesn't identify why it doesn't or when it does happen with huge levels of success, what was it that made it successful? Did they do something? Are we able to quantify an alteration that improves what we're already doing? it's really sharing and you're the leader of the process, but only on this subject matter, right? Only on the matters that we're equipped with. So there's that aspect. There's also the aspect of how do you give information to somebody on things that perhaps in many places you've never done? Well, you have a system. So, What ends up happening, I think, very frequently in the fire service is that the people that are leading, the so-called instructors, get good with their material and they get more complicated because the basics are boring because they've done them so many times and they continue to do them a lot. You know, hopefully, hopefully your repetition in demonstration of things that you're sharing don't exceed your repetition in your own practice, I still pull more lines than I instruct. You know, what ends up happening is that they get good with this particular aspect. And so, hey, here's a deviation. You know, we teach deviation before we teach probability. You work from probable to possible, not the other way around. And everything has to be building from the most common, most frequent out. That's the way that people learn skills. And so what happens is as instructors, and I've witnessed this firsthand and at times been guilty of it, of, Hey man, I just found that I've been struggling with this, somebody, something said a while ago, lent myself, I was twisting and tweaking and look at this, look at this adaptation. And one of those things is we used to create what we called a cheater bite. And without going into excruciating detail it works. But what works better is just knee walking and having the line loaded in the straight stick. That's what works better. There are some occasions where that cheater bite still is awesome, but that cheater bite is, there is some risk involved in it. And I mean, there is a potential of some stuff going wrong. And if you don't do it right, it's a little more sensitive than the secondary method. And we would, for, I don't know, a year and a half, it got worked into one station in the two days and it would be done with the first choice with the just the straight stick method and then the cheater bite would come in and they they would alter that one variation in the drill and they'd show the cheater bite and people would be like oh okay and they'd do it but what we noticed was with everybody teaching it we we kept touching base with it and it was a point that wasn't as solid as far as technically or conceptually. What I noticed was that, and, and a couple other guys mentioned, and I noticed that people that had had the class three times picked it up right away. So guess what? We will still show it when it is appropriate, but in the curriculum, it's actually written that way. Here is an option for someone that's a little further along, and it only fits these scenarios. And that's the other thing is that it's, it's an algorithm, Right. So you should be working from high to low as far as frequency. It should always be simple. There shouldn't be things that are incredibly complex because that just doesn't work under high stress time compression. I mean, you hear people all the time say, well, you should know your nozzle like a Marine knows their rifle. And I'm like, well, do you know what weapons the Marine Corps chooses? They choose weapons that are simple, that don't have a lot of variables because they don't want to have high level cognitive psychomotor skill trying to be done under high-stress time compression. People are like, well, I can can do all these 15 things with my nozzle. I'm like, yeah, and the AK-47 is the most used weapon in the world and has been since two years post-World War II. I wonder why that is. Oh, yeah, so when people use that argument, they don't actually understand that argument because they're ignoring the whole aspect of
0: the human component of skills. And complication bogs down the learner too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's it goes that way on a technical level as well. It's like you want it to be simple. And I think for me, I just had a class where somebody that had done it years ago, years and years ago, like eight years ago, came back and went through. And their comment at the end of the class was, and this is just a couple months ago, was like, man, it is so much more dialed in. It's the same material, but it's so much more articulate and clear in ways that this stuff is applied. And in a weird kind of way, and it felt simpler. And I'm like, fuck, yes. And he was almost tentative to say it because he was afraid he was going to offend me because he was saying I was simple. And instead, I'm like, I almost wanted to kiss him. You know, I'm like, yes, that's great. That your perspective tells me that what we're trying to do in my processes are the direction that I want to go. And this is why.
0: It's being refined.
1: Being refined into a simpler, more articulate series of skills and specifically the environment in which that skill is your primary choice. In other words, I'm able to translate the experience that's been given to me from my predecessors and my own into a simulation that prepares people to gain experience. pal of mine, Gabe Anjimi and I were talking the other day and we don't really have a way to talk about it, so we defined our terms. When he and I are talking, if you say experience, it means time inside a building on fire. And then Jim McCormack and I were talking about how training takes a variety of slots. It goes from no stress, here's the basic skill, it works up into associating those skills with the environment and then works into as close of a simulation to real life as you can get. But drill preparation comes on a continuum and that preparation allows you to interpret the experience. If you don't have a system in place and an expectation and you go to a fire, you're gonna learn some stuff. But if you have a system in place and an expectation of what's gonna occur based off preparation, You're going to learn more from that same fire because it's not all chaos. And so that means that when that guy tells me that, that means that I'm translating that information into a format that people can get. And that's the goal. And I think that what happens is we get more complicated because we're getting bored because firefighting is actually really simple water, search, vent supply is not that complicated and when it does get complicated it gets complicated because one of those things isn't done correctly or there's a malfunction offensive linemen do the same thing every day from when they're little to when they're big and the difference between the all pro and the guy that doesn't even get out of high school is the level of preparation and then when they go into those games and they come out and they read their film they're now translating their experience into a format that they can all process, and then because they can identify what went well and what went wrong or not as well, they actually can articulate what it is they're going to prepare on. Again, it comes back to work, and preparation is the basis. We are paid for potential. We exist because of what might happen. Firefighters in many places in the country go to work and don't do their primary mission as they see it my wife went to work today and like every day she's gone to work before that she is going to do her job. She's going to move decimal points. She's going to talk to bankers. She's going to, you know, do financial stuff, which I'm not sure what it is, but I know it involves decimal points and mathematics. There's no day that she goes to work and doesn't do that. The plumber goes to work. He's going to do plumbing. (laughs) They're not going to do electrical. And the fire service, that's not the case because of the arena that we're designed for is what might happen. And I think there's another thing with language and, you know, again, coming back to starting your fix of your fire department by defining your own internal jargon. When we say this, this is what we mean. And there's no deviation. If the word that you're choosing, for example, indirect attack for years, I spent 15 minutes of lecture time explaining to people why the indirect attack, where their definition comes from, because I had to translate it. Now I spend about three minutes and I say, when we say this, this is what we mean. In other words, there was so much baggage with the term indirect attack that you came with your own definition and everybody's definition. I mean, it was widely varied. So now I just say hi to low. So I threw out indirect attack. I quit trying to add another definition to it and said, when I say this, this is what I mean. And it's descriptive. It's a high to low attack. And that's it. If you recognize when you're taking your, so to call, linguistic census within your agency, and you recognize that these four terms have massive deviation, then when you write your document, you include the dictionary of these things mean this, 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 this. But in our agency, when we say this, this is what it means. It's a code word, you know, and that's what a jargon is. And when you start with that, now you can build from there. And does it take a while? Yes, it does. But it's still the quickest way to get everybody at least moving in the right direction to competency, to, to a higher level of performance. The other thing I think that's important to realize for my youth, when I came in to the fire service, this literally happened. I was a little older. And I'd played a sport at a reasonably high level, a couple of them. And when I went to one instructor, he says, I want you to do this. I say, okay, how? And he shows me, and I do it. I go over to the other station. This guy says, do this. Same thing. I start to do it. He's like, what are you doing? You don't do it that way. You do it this way. I was old enough and have enough of the mm, <laughs> that I was like, wait a fucking minute. You mean to tell me that I just did it over there and it was wrong? Cause that's what he said. Yeah. Well, this is the reason I, and I was like, so you don't have a way. There is no one way. It's the one way according to whoever's doing it. And that stuck with me in a sporting event. If you figure out there's a better way to do it, you do it that way. In the military, they do it that way. And both of those cite their sources and they cite their changes. We used to do it this way. We found this data to be true. Now we do it this way. The problem is, is that in our job, we are successful often with mediocrity because it really isn't that difficult most of the time. So mediocrity wins and that's why you can have people go well it you know that might be a better way to do such and such but i've done it this way forever and it's always worked for me if you said that in the nfl we'd still be running through between the tackles on first down second down and maybe third down oh we didn't get it okay we'll punt we'll get it next time let's run between the tackles you know i mean the military would still be using bolt-action rifles. The problem is is that the tradition of the fire service is winning. That is our tradition. And it, by hook or crook, it's winning. And winning being defined as this rescue of life and the saving of property. And you don't have a standard. As an industry, we don't have a standard within our own agencies. And there's going to be deviation between agencies, fine, of course. But there has to be a standard. And the other thing I think, Scott, that people miss on this is that I don't go to as many fires as a lot of people, but I go to more fires than most, having been around the country, or at least the upper bracket. So if you say that roughly there's 650 to 750,000 annual structure fires in the United States and 1.5 million firefighters, I've been to many places in the country where people with five years on have been to one working fire, and now they're teaching in the academy.
0: Yeah, we're not challenged to a high enough level to expose our weaknesses. Well,
1: do they have a standard? If they have a standard, you can have someone, for example, I was practicing sounding the floor before I ever found my first soft spot. And that's because my dad told me to do it. And he he told me how and why and when. And he was able to give me what had been given to him. So when I started sharing this stuff, there were skills that I had done fairly infrequently or never when I first started sharing this stuff. And I never passed it off as something that I had done. I was able to say, this is not something that I've ever needed personally had to use, but this guy, this guy, this guy have told me this, this is the reason, you know, Meg Jones was saying, Hey, think about this. You know, my dad, Shoop, all these people think about these things. And I would include them into my repertoire And I would pass them on, but I would pass them on in exactly that format. You know, now everything that I do, I've done it it, because of experience. But when I didn't have an experience with the basic skill, I could still pass the skill on because I was citing where it was from and my level of preparation was high. And I don't need to bullshit somebody because the validity of the skill is based on where the skill comes from and the fact that it falls into the system and the fact that the reason that I am qualified hypothetically or a person is qualified when they have a standard to show something is because they can articulate when, why, all those things. But they can also perform the skill at a higher level. Does that, that make sense? So now I have absolved by having a system in place, you have absolved your instructor cadre of making something up because it's all pre-described. This is what we do. This is why. This is when, when, how, all of those things show this and be good at these skills. And now we can tell what skills are critical because we've identified what events might occur. Okay. So that's the basics because in many places in this country, the difference between the person with five years on the job and three experiences is not that much different than the person with zero Time on the job and zero experiences. But if I'm teaching or sharing in an environment in which every station is unique, that it is okay somehow for in the same skill set, one instructor to say, do it this way, and the other instructor to say, no, no, don't do it that way. I do it this way. The first thing that should be taught is, we do it this way. This is why. And then after a certain level of This parallels that cheater bite of that thing. After a certain level of performance and understanding, now we can start to say, hey, there was a time that and I did this because now you're teaching probability and then after that's garnered possibility.
0: Well, at that level, you're also exploring the possibility that there might be something else and that's okay. And even if you come back to the same content that you've been delivering for years, it's still okay to see what's beyond the horizon once in a while.
1: Oh, absolutely, and try new things. What I'm getting at is what happens if you don't have a system in place and a language that you speak and you have a person that doesn't have a whole lot of experience sharing with someone that has zero experience and they don't have something to fall back on that is structural, they will typically rise to bullshit. It will be blah, 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 or that leads to that tradition of ours of don't fucking ask me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what's supposed to be done. Just do what I say, right? Because they don't actually understand. If somebody asks me, why am I doing something? I can tell them. And if I don't know why something is happening that's, you know, outside of my skill set, I'm going to find out why. Because if I understand why, the how isn't really the problem. If I go into a rescue class and they teach me a not, And I learned this knot zero, year zero. And this is the way that you do it. Okay, just do this. Just tie this knot. Okay, in this way. Okay, in this setting. Okay, I've created a mimic. So now in 15 years, let's say 15 years in which uh, I wasn't privy to the development of the tech team, why they were changing things, the experience that they were basing, the the, the twists and tweaks they were making, and the reasons why. And then I go take a refresher class. And they say, okay, the way that you were doing it, don't do it that way. Do it this way now. That's an opposition. You mean to tell me I've been doing it wrong? It's worked up to now. No, no, it's not wrong. It's just we've gone to a different way. And now because it was a mimic and they didn't really understand the whys and the whens, Anything that's different is in opposition to intellectually. Whereas if you start with, this is the mission. When we set up a system like this, this is what we are trying to achieve. These are the base components of this system. These things must be done in this order. I need an anchor. I need a a change of direction so that if there is not enough room to do this, we do this. And you work through things in that manner and then after the what we're doing, why we're doing it, when we would do it, and the sequencing is all in place, then we show the hows. When we come back in five years or 10 years or 15 years, and we have some different hows, the hows are the details. The hows is the the frosting, mechanics of everything, and conceptually, this is a big deal. Conceptually, there's no deviation. You're just showing me another way, an improvement, and because we all speak the same language. You can actually start the training session with, you know, we've spent the last five years looking at knots. What we've recognized is that this knot is sometimes not as appropriate. This is why. So we've made this alteration. Hey guys, it's the same system. Just make this change on this knot. And this is why we've made it. Now you're not in an opposition to anything. Nobody's feeling like they've been told that they've been doing it wrong. They've simply been told another way. And the reasons why the change has been made. We used to pull the trigger and get three round bursts. Now we get a one round burst. Why? No soldier has ever been like, oh, fuck that. The three round burst worked for me for years, fool. I'm just gonna do it. Well, maybe it's not the best way. doesn't matter. It worked for me then, and the military, no, we're going to this, and this is why. Hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start throwing the ball on first and second down. Why? Because the guys that did that for a few years won four Super Bowls. That's why. Same patterns, same routes, slightly different organization. You're not learning a new way to do it. You're learning a deviation off of a well-established probability-based mechanic. It isn't that difficult when you break it all down because it's fairly simple. The other thing, right, and this is, you know, you mentioned, you know, when did you let the angst go? You know, I got guys in my own fire department that will call me up and say, oh, you know, I was thinking, great, I'm super stoked. Let's talk about it. Okay, now let's do it. Well, (laughs) I've done that. And here's the reasons why it's awesome that we're thinking about it. It's awesome that we're having the conversation. But at some point when I was a wrestler, you know, who wrestled at the end of the week, the guy that had won the most matches during the week, that's who, there was nobody sitting on the bench going, well, I wouldn't do my single leg like that. I'd do it like this. Okay. Come show me. At some point you got to be able to show it. And because we don't have a real litmus test and so it becomes bullshit bravado machismo people spewing about this is the way that you do it and pointing fingers and yelling and screaming at some point the easiest way to prove what works the best and what doesn't on a mechanical level is to set up a drill that simulates the environment and run the two head to head and if one way is consistently working more effectively than the other way. Perhaps we should make an alteration because the tradition of the fire service is winning. We're not trying to lock our history into place. We are trying to evolve or adjust and adapt to be more effective. You can't have emotion in the evaluation. So Seattle, we changed the hose bed. It only took 10 years, so that was awesome. And then somebody in another station, um, you know, and I'm pretty heavily involved in the engine company training. Somebody in another station was messing around with our supply bed, and they were using a variation of something that we had explored on another bed. They adjusted it. They adapted it. They started thinking about it. They understood it. They could come up with something, and we're now running experiments on a new hose bed configuration. I had someone the other day say, well, how do you feel about that, Aaron? I'm like, how do I feel about what? How do you feel about someone else doing hose stuff? I'm like, well, first off, there's a bunch of people doing hose stuff in Seattle. And we all work together. And if these guys understand something and they've twisted and twisted and tweaked and played with and experimented, and now they're throwing it out to the group to try, I'm stoked because that's called winning. Like, awesome. Great. Thank God. But here's the big point is it's not change just to change. You quantify that there's an issue. You come up with multiple options with many people with input. And that's the other thing. And I mentioned that right away is I'm involved with hose training. That doesn't mean it's all me. You know, I'm listening and we're all listening to other people's perspective. When we changed this hose bed, one of the first things I did was go to my old Lieutenant John Cameron and say, look at this and tell me what you think. I want you not tell me what you think in when I agree with you, tell me what you disagree with me on. Both of them are important. And then we can talk through those base things. I went to a chief and I said, Chief, this is what we're. And Chief Phillips is like, Hey, let's go with this. And I said, Chief, what do you see the hose bed? This hose bed, if we were to reconfigure it, what would you want out of it? Such and such a captain, what would you want? Lieutenant Graves, what would you want? Hey, Runto, what would you want? And you know, we talk to all these of these people that are thinking about this stuff, going, What would you be looking for? And wrote them down and went, okay, here's the three most common things. And fortunately, they happen to correspond with what you know, Lujan and myself and a couple other guys had kind of said, Yeah, these are I think what we could use them for. Awesome. Okay, so let's figure out a couple ways that we could do this. And we want to load this hose bed that is currently the most dissimilar with the rest of the stuff into the most similar way. That's very similar. So that people aren't learning a whole new skill set for one hose bed, which is what we have right now. So we played with multiple different options. And we came up with something that for us works very, very well. And then we rolled out two or three different options, specifically two. One had got eliminated right away. And that we figured out the four most common stretches that we were gonna do with it and the number of people that are gonna be involved. And we ran simulations. We ran those stretches with that set of hands through the different variations multiple times. And it was basically a consensus. People like, yeah, this one works the best. It's the fastest to deploy. It's the simplest. It's the easiest to see. It takes the least modification and it's the most similar to what we've done before. This is why we're going with this. And that's the reason. A friend of mine, even before he had ever messed with the hose bed, you know, is texting people like, What the hell is this? And then we sit and talk about it. He's like, "Oh, oh, okay. You know, it's like, wait, there's a reasoning for all this. It isn't two guys in some room with a whiteboard and a bunch of imagination. It's, we, there's actually a process of evaluation. It's well-documented how to do that kind of stuff. The U.S. military has those kinds of evaluations and processes written down. So before someone thinks, oh, we're just changing shit willy-nilly, it's absolutely not. You try to not alter things, but it, it is within our job description to evaluate whether new approaches and options are valid.
0: Other industries have R and D.
1: Yeah, exactly. And before we adopt it, the whole picture needs to be considered. What is currently being done? How are you going to implement this? Does this make our process easier or more complex? All of these things need to be addressed, and then it needs to be rolled out in a one or two engines and played with, and then moved from there. When I hear firefighters of all ranks say, well, that's not possible. No, 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 It is possible. And it is actually required. And if you do that, all of a sudden you've given your people practice. If you break your drills down into these pieces that are component-based and universal, now you've broken it down into five-minute, 15-minute, 30-minute, an hour intervals. So you can do them on duty. And then you said, hey, we're going to look at this. Let's go look at this building because we have three ways that we stretch hose. Primary, secondary, tertiary, which if you take the class, you know what those are. How? And we got two sets of hands and we need to make it to there. Let's run through the likely probability of which of those stretches or sequence of stretches work on this space. Recently, the company I'm on now, the captain's like, hey, On these buildings, I'm thinking this. What are you guys thinking? And I'm like, well, Cap, I think we should do this. This is why. He's like, awesome. And we went and did it, both of them. And he timed them and he watched it, the speed and the efficiency and the effectiveness all in one. And, you know, that one deployed and how the other one deployed. And they both worked. But the second choice ended up being the better one. And he's like, okay, Aaron, you're right. Let's do that. That's what we're gonna go with. We're gonna go with this. And we're gonna save this first one that I was thinking for this type of setting. What do you think of that? I'm like, oh yeah. And the other guy's like, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay. And then we'll go try that other setting another day. And he's got a lot of time on. And he comes to the engine from truck work. You know, my boss before that, we would do those things. Hey, in this environment, let's work through this. Okay. Hey, Luke, have you ever thought of this? Oh, I have. And this is why we've gone. Or no, I haven't. Let's go do it. You know, that becomes a daily event in between calls. And now we're not talking about what we feel, but we're talking about what we know. And because we've practiced it, we can discuss those other options and those other options are never a threat. And this is the thing that people, people go, Oh, you can't, you know, It's not a threat. If you try something new and you run it through the process and the litmus test and all those things that you're supposed to do, and frankly, if you cannot articulate from probability to possibility and you are not able to articulate where we could improve, then don't start looking to change shit because now you're just changing it to change it. It's got to be purpose based. You have to remove the EGO from the equation what is the objective and why? And, you know, flowing and moving was something that I learned from other people. It wasn't something that was taught to me in my basic training because my region, it wasn't a big deal, even though in some regions it is. And once I, when I first learned it, I was like, Whoa, this is very different, but I didn't go, fuck that. These guys don't know what they're doing because there was a bunch of people saying it. In fact, when I took the survey, of every person that I worked with, no matter whether it was a prolonged exposure or just one class, the guys and gals that flowed and moved, the way that they described it and the space that they described it in was almost exactly the same. It was the hit and move, the flow shut down advance that had wide deviation. The flowing and moving was the thing that was the most consistent. And that's where I started my examination of the process from. I'm like, well, all of these people are saying this. And that comes back to that whole point on language of what are people really looking for? What are they trying to communicate? And where is the most common and build out from there? So if you can't articulate those kinds of things, then change is a very difficult process because you're not able to quantify why you're changing and you're not able to quantify the progression but if you can quantify and and articulate the three or four evolutions that are probable and work those and drill those and figure out the effects from there and then base your decision that's a pretty healthy place to be and what comes from trying new things do you think it or do you know it before we're selling things to each other as the gospel we might want to make sure that what we think is based off what we've done, not what we've sat around and thought about, you know, well, there was one time that somebody overstretched or one time that someone understretched. The the one time doesn't trump the probability. So when you evaluate it and you're evaluating new things, there's only three things that occur. One, you go, oh, God, this is a better way. Let's adopt it, which is winning. You go, you know What? The other, I see why people, some people would prefer this, but in my region, because of our layouts or whatever, our staffing, our demographics, the way that we're doing it is still the better way. Well, what have you done? You've validated your position, and you've based your opinion of what you're doing off the experience of comparing it to something else, and you've strengthened your understanding of what's occurring and why which means the next time, which there will be a next time that this conversation comes up, you have actually already had it, which means you can fall back on it. And if we articulate those things, now we're not forced to every 20 or 15 years revisit, like, well, are we really, like, should we be, because we've already had these discussions, and unless some of the key points have changed, there might not be a reason to go into in-depth examination because we've already done it. Now, if some of the parameters have changed, then you have to. But the third thing that happens and, and the thing that is the most common is um, you go, you know what? This part of method A is pretty, pretty cool, but I don't think that this aspect of it fits us. So how can we dovetail? So you end up with a hybrid. So we either have wholesale adoption, wholesale rejection, or hybriding. In all cases, you've improved because you've not only improved your intellectual basis, you've validated or improved your performance. I'll give you an example of this. A friend of mine who has been through the class a bunch of times, a guy named Nick Papa, just called me the other day. You know, he and I are talking and he's telling me about this event that he had that he had been drilling with his crew that day. And the next thing you know, they catch the exact fire that's on the one that they had been preparing for. And the ability to flow and move was really, really beneficial. Um, and so he was talking about this and we're talking about, you know, what does that mean? And what not only what did they get from that experience, but what did this new firefighter get impressed with? Well, he got impressed with a lot of things, what an engaged driver and company officer looked like, what realistic relative practice looks like, how practice can sometimes immediately improve performance. And even if it does not immediate, he got impressed with all of these things on a very subconscious level. But the other thing that part of this conversation was Nick started talking about hose beds, which are one of the points in my curriculum that often bring up the most visceral, reaction it's funny you can tell someone you know your hose handling could use some improvement they're like okay okay show me but if you say anything about their hose bed it's like it's like you're talking about their mama like whoa 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 now now you've done step too far you know and so at this point i'm not seeing on a very regular basis any hose bed that's new sometimes i'm seeing subtle variations on Uh, different types of hose beds, but there isn't that many options. And so I've stretched off of and practiced with just about everything out there. I don't present one way to load hose. I present a series of options and, you know, people go away from our program often the first time and like first thing to do is change the hose bed. That's actually the last thing to do. (laughs) Don't worry about that. Worry about the other stuff, the handling and the movement and the language and all that stuff first. Um, the hose bed is like cooking beans. You don't cook beans in 15 minutes. That's not efficient. It's effective. It's thorough. It's complete. And those beans at the end of the day are delicious. 15-minute beans, I'm not interested in eating. You know, stuff that's been being refried all day, I am down with. That's delicious. So what, and what Nick was saying was, is he was, and it was cool because he gets it, and he tried to implement some change to a hose bed that was met with some resistance. And so what he did was is he found the compromise between what he knows works from working with me and what they're currently doing. They found a compromise and the compromise allows for those people that are really dialed in with what he would like to do to perform it. But at the same time gets those people who were resistant to that on board because it's not this big, huge hop. It's this intermediate jump. They found some compromise and in their area, what they're doing works very, very well. Now, Nick would say that probably the way that he would like to go to might work a little bit better in several different settings, but not all of them. But the margin of improvement was narrow enough that the compromise is valid. That's exactly the point. They wholesale adopted some movement in hose handling and language. They hybrided some other aspect. And some aspect, they haven't changed at all because their way for their setting is the better option. And that's the goal. The only way that these things can happen is words. It comes back to our ability to talk about it, to talk about it in real terms, to talk about it in technically specific terms so that there's less time spent. You No, 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 what I meant was. And more time spent actually discussing possibilities. And the beauty of it is, is, you know, you asked me early on, I mean, we've talked enough, you know, a lot of times I'll say that I don't think the fire service is any different. You asked me long ago how I was able to kind of move from, you know, a very, at times, aggressive strike back kind of approach to one that's more balanced. And that is, I have become more articulate. I have a better depth of knowledge on the materials that I study, whether it be social justice or linguistics or history or welding or coaching or firefighting, whatever it is, the more articulate and well-educated I am, the more I'm able to have a conversation based around facts, not feelings. And when I'm a kid and I don't understand socioeconomic injustice, but I'm seeing it happen. It's an attack. And so I want to fight back. And as an adult, I want to fight back, but I want to win. And the way that you win is cool calculating and non-emotional. So anytime I decide that I'm going to throw metaphorically a punch, it's not my gut reaction. It's an escalated choice. But it starts with, hey, have you ever thought about this? It starts at the low, right? And so that you have a throttle and the ability to throttle up and down only comes from depth of understanding and education. And I don't know why in North America today, being smart is considered elitist. That is the tradition of North America. It is the tradition that blue collar Hard-working people can be smart. Smart isn't bad no matter what it is you're doing. Smart allows you to do those things better. And smart isn't inherent. Smart is learned and it's worked for. And you're not going to fucking get it in Facebook and you're not going to get it in 30-minute intervals with eight minutes in between of programming to buy shit. You're going to get it through prolonged, effective exposure to whatever that material is and it's not going to come from only associating with people that agree with you it's going to come from having conversations with people that both agree and disagree and that we need to spend time teaching people how to have these conversations not how to avoid them which is what we've done we don't want to have the tough conversation a friend of mine he saw this hose bed i was talking about he was you know when he and i were talking about it yeah i just don't like conflict Brother, it ain't conflict if you're not yelling and screaming. People think that because we don't agree or that we're discussing something, that's conflict. That's not conflict. That's we don't agree and we're having discussion. Conflict comes when you don't do those things, and people get their wires crossed. And that all comes back to the ability to communicate. And I know that a lot of times you're like, God, you know, he's he fucking cerebral, you know, talking about language, blah, 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 well, I'll tell you a funny story is uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Tim Klett out of FDNY and Tim at a conference that I was at jumped into the back of the room and he's sitting there and he told me this later and he's listening to what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a conversation that he was privy to uh, about indirect attack and I'm using it as the example. I look up and he's nodding and then I see him a couple months later and he's like, you know, Aaron, I've been doing this for a long time. And this is a paraphrase. And he's like, and I listened to what you had to say, and I was like, oh, shit, that's the problem. He's right. That's the problem. It's like we're speaking different dialects, and in some cases, different languages. And despite what you see people try to do when you're on the street in an emergency scene and the person doesn't speak your language, you don't speak louder and slower. That doesn't, just because you got, you increased the volume and slowed down, doesn't mean they understand what you're saying. And so that's kind of my thing, I think. It's so simple, it's sitting right in front of us.
0: There's also a time and place to smile and nod. Sometimes I like to start from a place of asking myself, or maybe asking people directly, like how married to their idea are they? If people are married to their idea so firmly, you know, they've got their heels dug in, then there's no room for conversation. We can't talk.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that definitely happens. But I don't think that happens that often, but you're right. I mean, it does happen. And I mean, you know, I say this and I I mean, I like, I like words and I like what they mean. Sometimes a motherfucker is just a motherfucker. (laughs) I mean, there are motherfuckers, (laughs) but most people aren't. And those folks, it doesn't matter. There's nothing... That you're going to do, say, or anyone's going to do or say that. And and in, in a professional setting, I mean, let's call it what it is write them off, go around them. And if you get everybody else moving in that direction, then the few people that fall into that definition don't matter anymore. And now you've created a culture in which that behavior is the one that's deemed deviant, not, well, Aaron, you care too much. I don't know why you practice so hard. Why are the people that are engaged meant to feel like the pariah? Because the technical culture and the culture has space that we've let almost apathy creep in. And now nobody wants to be seen to care too much. And I think that also falls into kind of our perception of ourselves as firefighters, right? In the fire service, we don't, you know, we, we're tough guys, tough folks. We all are tough, tough capable and tough. I'm right. Just ask me. And if you are doing a whole lot of preparation, what you're suggesting is apparently the mark of a good firefighter is what? The mark of a good wrestler is he's wrestling because uh, if he's not any good, he's not wrestling. Yeah, that's that's the litmus test. The litmus test for fire service is tattoos and mustaches. Like how many of them do you have has a direct relationship on your bad acidry, apparently? I have none of them. I don't have any tattoos and I don't have a mustache. So My, you know, I'm saying that facetious, if you have a tattoo and a mustache, that's just fine. But, you know, making a joke there, but, you know, I don't have any of them. So I practice really fucking hard. (laughs) I practice really hard because I don't have any inherent gifts except work ethic. That's the one that was beat into me. And I'll just keep doing that. But when I was being thrown around by a guy that went on in Atlanta to win a bronze medal, I'll tell you what he did. He practiced. He practiced. He practiced those three things that he wants to meddle with every day, sometimes twice a day, six days a week, nine months a year. I'm not world class in anything. And when I was allowed to practice with this national team in the country I was living in with, I got shredded. Because even if I was on occasion technically on par. I wasn't physically on par. We're talking about the top 5% of humanity here. <laughs> you know. And there's no thing I'm going to do that is going to be able to make my neurology fire faster.
0: Specialization.
1: Yeah, and exactly. He was better than me in every aspect. On the one part of the game that I was better than him technically, far enough of a technical gap, I overcame all of those other things and had some success, but it was a pretty narrow window I don't want to sell. This as something like, you know, I was, but only in that arena, everything else you shredded me with. And, but that doesn't mean you didn't learn. And I, I was gifted with the opportunity to see what real high level performance includes what goes into real high level. And the other flip of that is the coaches in this country weren't necessarily high level performers. In the sport, they understood the sport. They knew the sport. They had done the sport. But more important to this country was their ability to coach, and they had an actual system for it. You went to school for it, there was grading for it, internal grading for it. And the level of success that you had performance wise is what allowed you to coach at the higher and higher level. So when I got to get with these guys, when I was getting ready to leave, I was like, you know, I am way, way better, but I'm not physically any better. What just happened? Because my coaching experience up to then had been with good coaches, but coaches that were also surveyors and coaches that were accountants, and they played the sport. That was what allowed them to coach. They played the sport. They weren't coaching specialists. They didn't give any thought to how people learn psychomotor skills. There was no background to that. Whereas in this place it was the flip and they said, oh, that's interesting. So they gave me some documents and they thought, hey, some of these documents are based off your documents that were started here. Go read these essays. And most of the documents are out there on the internet. There's a bunch of them and there's a bunch of them that, you know, deviate off one another, but there's a bibliography on psychomotor skill coaching. So when I came back, I just continued to do that, and that was 25 years ago. And that's been a focus because I was either involved with the sport as a participant and coach or just involved recreationally in a coach, and then this thing happened. And I never intended to teach fire service. What I did was I went out and I took all these classes and came back and just started working on them for myself. But I instead of putting them through the fire service training mechanism – I put them through this mechanism for this sport. I applied these principles that I'd been working on for at the time, damn near 15 years to the fire service, breaking down of skill, breaking down of skill to isolate and to drill the phases, all those things. And I applied that to it so that I could learn it. And then someone said, Hey, would you show us whatever that shit is you just did? And like, yeah, okay. And I showed people a few things and, It's just grown from there. I think that that's kind of important is that we start to look at systems in the fire service. We have really skilled people that really know their stuff. We need to give them a mechanism to be able to explain that. And it's not innate. It bothers me when people say, Oh, Aaron, you know, I took your class and you're just a gifted instructor. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I am hardworking and I'm self-evaluating, and I watch how people react. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, watching the the crowd. Absolutely, I watch the crowd. I watch how people are, if they understand it, if they don't understand it, and I try to create an an environment where they feel okay making mistakes, just kind of like practices, you know, that's usually practice. A lot of mistakes being corrected, and I correct them, and I tell them why, and and it's okay, and it's humorous. And it's fun, but it does not lack intensity nor seriousness. That means that you don't have to be a totalitarian to imply that things are serious.
0: And if it was only about you, then you could say, well, I was efficient today. I taught that eight-hour class in six hours. But if it's about the people, then you might end up teaching that eight-hour class in nine hours to be effective.
1: Yeah, in fact, and if you teach a program enough, you know exactly how long it takes. But this program... It's 22 to 24 hours every time. doesn't matter if there's 30 people or 200 people. It's going to take the time it takes. You know why? Because human beings, despite our egocentric nature to be original and unique, are not. We are damn similar. We're all, as my quote my 10-year-old Hugh, we're all the same race. We're all the same species. There's not that many deviations. When you consider the number of people, we're very, very similar. And acquisition of a psychomotor skill takes a certain amount of time. And by the way, the U.S. military teaches people to do it, how to teach their skills in like 30 to 60 pages. (laughs) And instead, what the fire service does is they use instructor one and instructor two, which don't work. And a mechanism called train the trainer in which you might not know a skill, but you're going to go learn. And in three days, you'll not only learn to be able to answer the questions on the skills and do the skills at a high level, but you'll also learn to teach the skills. No, that's not it. That's not how it works. It's a continual ongoing process. And the mechanism for teaching is very, very similar. Our documents and within the fire service don't even begin to approach the subject uh, the books that we use that are most often used for instructor qualification are adaptations of four depending on the addition to six different methods of academic skill acquisition. The last I checked there and it might have changed i don 't know, but the last I checked there was about five pages on psychomotor skill I mean I remember one of the questions on my inst- one of my instructor whatever questions was how far should the desks be apart <laughs> Really? Really? That's that. That's a question for somebody that doesn't have a real question. Because if that's the case, what temperature do people learn academic information at the best? Uh, It's it's the low 60s. You know how that was figured out? The Russians opened up the windows to these classrooms in Moscow and St. Petersburg and measured the temperature and see who did better on the same data with the same presentation
0: on the tests.
1: Yeah, so you got a nice comfortable room. You got people going to sleep. Make it cold and people will pay attention.
0: That's right. That's why we roll the windows down when you're falling asleep when you're driving, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. That's right. We're going to be in a wind tunnel. Put on your earmuffs. The point being is like the ridiculousness of that being a tested material and the ridiculousness of this concept that it's once you get it, you've got it. Education is an ongoing act and it's an act in personal humility. And if you're unwilling to continue to change and grow and adapt and adjust and challenge your position, then perhaps you shouldn't be involved with passing on of information because you're going to become static. And one of the things, and you have mentioned this to me, that class is always the same, but there's always some differences. And if it wasn't, that would mean I'm static. That would mean I'm cashing in and I'm just sitting back on my laurels and I really wanna go tell everybody what a badass I am over beers after we get done with this. Instead of like, no, no, I make this mistake all the time and if you need help with it, I'll help you do it. Yeah, I'm as wet as you are, let's go. The fact that it's continually changing, that is the tradition of all things and you have to be self-reflective. And who better to be self-reflective than the people that understand the material more? Instead of getting more secure with our position, we should be more inquisitive of other positions. Then once you know your material and you know when and why and how and all those things, something that is different isn't a challenge. I'm not emotionally threatened by somebody doing something different. I don't care, whatever. Let's talk about it. And at the end of the day, if we're none talking because we can talk all day and everyone's got a feeling on it, let's go do it. And then we'll see. Because <laughs> you can tell me how to shoot a single leg. I want to see you shoot a single leg. And you, if you've got some unique way of doing it, you better know when it applies. I mean, you better know the exact situation it applies. And at a high level, when people are teaching probability, they are assuming that you already know the likelihood. So just recently, to use an example, I was watching somebody do an ankle pick and everyone in the group were experienced practitioners. Everybody knew how to do an ankle pick with very, very little deviation. No point in my wrestling career, my grappling career has, have, I went to one side of the mat and one coach said, do this. And I said, how, and they tell me how, and then I go to the other side of the mat and the other coach say, no, you don't do it like that. You do it like this. That's never been fucking done. Not one time. And it it pisses me off that the fire service think that's that all right. There's a way to do it. There's a way to get mechanical advantage. And there's some basic principles that have to be followed because it's physics. And then it ties in and you allow for subtle deviation. But you don't worry about the deviation until you know the basic. So at this high level, this guy's doing this ankle pick and he's doing it from an interesting setup he's walking everybody through it and it works really well from that specific scenario. But he can articulate, it's a cross grip. You know, I'm right hand dominant left foot forward, or, you know, the variation in which he was going to apply it. He was, he knew that everyone knew it. So he was able to coach this one possible application, not probable possible because you've already done possibility. So they just learned a variation of an ankle pick, but they also know exactly what environment must exist for this to work. I do four different variations of fireman throw, but I start with A1 fireman throw. And if you don't know that throw, then I can't show you those variations. And you won't learn those variations until you know that.
0: Learn what's in the box before you play outside of it.
1: Yeah. Well, you don't know where the box is if you have never hit the corners. Yeah, absolutely. And the only way to think outside the box is to actually know what's in the box. Otherwise, it's just a point over there and a progression. Hey, if you'd go for this, they do this. You swing here, you swing there. Hand goes here, foot goes there. Because this is the frequent way they get out. But the problem with that is, is that that requires firefighters to actually evaluate what's occurring inside buildings and have a language that they can talk. If I go to anywhere in the country and go, Hey, your penetration step isn't far enough. They know exactly what I mean. I don't have to define my fucking terms. You know, Hey, you're going to do a, a leg ride. You're going to do a Turk, you know, you're going to do a wizard. You're going to do a shoulder throw. Everyone's like, oh,
0: okay, I know what that is.
1: Yeah. Hey, you're going to run a trap. Hey, I'm going to do an off tackle dive. Hey, we're hike on three, on three break. <laughs> I mean, it's all defi- the fire service is like, well, you know, y- 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 wait a minute here. This has worked for me forever, and I don't like that word, and uh, blah, 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 blah. It just becomes this pile of gobbledygook. And the reason, again, comes back to the fires aren't that tough. We're not lining up against someone that's an Olympic medalist or an all-pro every single day. And because of that, there's another component, which is, I think, the tradition in the North American Fire Service, I think it's the same in Canada, is that about 70% of the job are volunteer. Now, before people react to that, I know many, many volunteers that are more professional than professional. The Whether you're paid or not is, is not a distinguishing factor between how good they are. But what I will say is that for many, many, many fire departments in this country, Their training regime looks like once a week for two hours. And when they get onto a career job where they're going more frequently, they don't up the amount of practice. I mean, what they need to figure out is the amount of time spent training, two hours once a week, doesn't sound like a lot unless you're only spending four hours inside the firehouse a week. Then it's 50%. So now when you up your numbers to you are there for 24 hours two or three times a week how much time should we be spending training it's it's scale now i'm not saying we should be spending 50% i mean it's it's different we're we're one of the few performance based arenas that don't go out of service. We don't go out of service to practice. The military doesn't all of a sudden just pack up and go fight a a war. the, The Cardinals don't show up and the Seahawks are like, oh, it's time to play. I mean, but the fire service, we have to be able to drill in a manner that keeps us in service for the vast majority of the time, which means our drills have to be a little bit more creative. And in that, as far as how we break creative and how we break them down and how we isolate individual skills so that we don't need to be seriously deployed with all of our gear in order to respond, you know, because that inhibits our ability to go fast, but um, you, you can do it. If you think about it, like, let's just say for many companies in this country, if you work three days a week and you spent three hours, a shift involved in drill, that's nine hours, right? If you spent an hour in the morning, an hour after lunch, and an hour after dinner, physical, physical, mental, mental, you know, book drill at the end, physical drill in the morning, maybe a conceptual and physical drill at lunch, after lunch, and then a cup of coffee, you know, drill and then housework drill. And because we've drilled, we get a better rig check. And then we go to housework and then the boss figures out the other stuff that we got to do. And we go nail that and pick up dinner and then we go and eat lunch and then come back and talk about it and do a quick drill. I'm not talking about getting into hypoxia. You do a drill and then you pack up and you go get a cup of coffee. And while you're out with the coffee, you do an inspection, but the inspection is focused around hose deployment. Hey, I'm gonna we're going to walk this building and I want you to pay attention to extension cords and, and where the cockroaches are leading and all that stuff. But mostly what I want you to think about is how much hose do you need at the far end? How are you going to get it there? What size line are you going to get there? Now you go back, you get on the rig and what are you guys thinking on that? Oh, it's this, this and this. Hey, how would you stretch that? Ah, that's a good question. Uh, You know, this stretch, which I first thought might take too many sets of hands, but you know, Scott, you got a good one, man. Hey boss, can we set that up? Sure. You know what we can do? We can go back to the firehouse, lay out basically that configuration more or less. And we'll use surplus spare hose that's dry and make that stretch and make it in those combinations. Boom. Go back to firehouse, do your thing, do whatever other stuff the boss needs us to do and the city needs us to do. Start preparing dinner at the end of dinner. Hey, let's watch three fires on YouTube and talk about what we would do and where these buildings exist in our first do. Bang, all done. Now you're doing you're playing cards or whatever it is. I know most people want to go then go on Facebook and tell everybody what they've done all day. <laughs> but you could also put a cut a pot of coffee on, turn the fucking TV off and play a game of cards and ask each other about how the families are going. And, hey, man, do you need me to watch your kids? And I'm sorry, your mother's sick.
0: Sounds like a great day.
1: And go on runs and get And now we've made work the basis for what we're doing. And guess what we've become. We've become the professionals that we say and they expect us to be. And before long we'll become the family that we would like to be because we're, we've shared experiences and we've done work and then when we go on fires and we have those fires and those things play out we have a mechanism to go hey hey cap i am super stoked you had us work on that and hey i messed this up what could you have done and you're like i don't think it was a mess up here's why or it was easy. I, I saw what happened and I was able to fix it before it. So we're able to actually talk about those things that went well and went, went poorly. And then we're able to reinforce in our drills, those things that went well and fix those things that went poorly. And now because everybody's going to make mistakes in preparation, nobody's got any ego involved in mistakes because they're an opportunity to get better. Boom. Now, all of a sudden you have a functioning company. And then what happens is everybody wants to be part of that company. And then when people come in and you include them and you remember that knowledge is power when it's shared freely, it's when it's lorded and hoarded, it's divisive and destructive. And you come in and you include people. All of a sudden you have officers pulling you aside and other firefighters pulling you aside and going, hey, Fields, you know, when this stuff first rolled out, I thought you were a real asshole because I never got a chance to really talk with it. This was really fun. My opinion has changed. Literally conversations that I've had, or if nothing else, everybody wants to be part of that thing that you got going, and they come and work with you, and they see how it's done, and you include them and say, "Hey, you know what you could do the next time you're on your engine, call us." This is another thing that's happened. Hey man, I don't understand. You know, when you're breaking this down, how do you how do you come up with it? Oh, I do this, this, and this. Oh shit, I think I'll get there, but I'm not there yet. Oh, that's okay call me, call the boss every day that we're on, that you need a drill and see what we're doing. And now we'll drill together. And guess what we can do after dinner conference call between the two crews. Hey, what did you guys come up with? We came up with this. Oh, that's bullshit. That'll take too long. And everybody's having fun with it. And then the two captains are like, okay, we'll we'll meet at such and such a building on the border next shift. We'll do our thing and you and I, lieutenant, and the captain will be the judges, and whoever does it better doesn't have to buy coffee. Oh, you got it. You know, you're on. This is easy. You know, people think a lot of times when they hear me that, that it's this like regimented. It's not at all. It's It should be organic. And like, listen, some people don't like the term, we won the lottery or whatever. For whatever reason, I got hired. And this is what I've wanted. And I don't ever forget what it felt like to get that call.
0: Talk to me about the importance of failure and the difference between confidence and arrogance and humility and self-deprecation.
1: Arrogance and confidence are actually diametrically opposed in my worldview. And this is the reason. Arrogance is a sense of self that's usually self-inflated, and it's usually the mark of fear. We fear what we don't understand, and fear leads to decisions that are not being made. So let me step back. I think the coolest thing about being an adult is you can make a decision that isn't based around me. And in fact, you know, one of the things I talk about in the class very frequently is I believe that to raise a child, let me draw the connection to children, is when as a species, we are incredibly fragile. And when we're born, unlike all mammals, we get carried around for a couple of years. Most mammals are like, listen, homie, you got 45 minutes. If you're not on those hooves, you're lion food. Let's go. But we come out and the whole world revolves around us. That antelope knows that the world doesn't revolve around us. That antelope at no point feels like the world is my oyster. The world, that antelope is like, man, I got to keep up with these dudes because they're bigger than me. And that lion looks hungry. And I recognize the look on that lion's eyes. Humans are like, oh, it's about you. It's about you. You're special. Ain't no fucking buddy special. Nobody's special. We've got to quit lying to our children. I've never told my children that they're special. I've told them that I love
0: them. I heard Joe Rogan say the other day, biology doesn't care about your emotions.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so what ends up happening is, is we grow up the first four or five years. If I piss my pants or I need some food, somebody's coming to give it to me. They're going to fix it for me. The quote that I love, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but this is a little side note. Mankind is turning thinking over to machines, thinking that it was going to set themselves free. When in fact, what it does is allow other men with machines to enslave them. So what happens is, is our society programs you into 22 minutes and you watch a sitcom and everything's shiny and bright and pastel, and your worst problem gets solved in 22 minutes. And fundamentally, it's about you. And how do you feel in your ability to have a boat three cars and four TV, it's all that gets wrapped into this. And so the next thing you know, the world revolves around us. And so as we grow up, we make decisions that are based around me. And I believe the mark of an adult is someone that can make the decision based around someone else, something that's good for the mass, not for myself, something that may be fundamentally not advantageous for me, but is good for the whole. And I think that's the mark of an adult. And clearly, many, 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 legal adults are still children. So we have children that are leading companies and businesses and therefore the government. And we don't have people that are like, yeah, this is gonna suck for me. This is financially not gonna be awesome, but it's the right thing to do. The humility of failure. I think we don't give enough thumbs up for people failing. We reward success, which is awesome, but we should also reward failure. Like, you know what, Hugh? Yeah, that wasn't very good. Let's do it again. Let's fix it. Not that's not very good. And you suck. There's a woman and she's one of the few African-American Fortune 500 CEOs, might be the only one. And she likes to talk about not judging people, judging action. The way that she articulates it is actually profound. And I can't remember her name right now, but uh, really, really articulate, intelligent uh, way to talk about it. So When my kid makes a mistake or I make a mistake, it's not a character flaw. The character flaw is what you do after it. Do you fix it or do you hide it? So confidence is born from failure and usually failure in front of your peers at some point. My kid last night went to take a clinic. And so my second sport that I played was lacrosse. And my kid plays. And my, my oldest is a long pole and he's very, very good. I played D and he's playing D. And... For a 14-year-old, he's great. And he went and did a clinic last night with a guy that's a pro lacrosse player, which isn't as big of a deal as it is to say, like basketball, because the pro league is is kind of just getting bubbling. But he went with uh, 22 other kids. It's February in Washington. There's 22 kids out there. He comes home. He does his homework. He takes a nap. He gets up. We go to this thing. We drive an hour, hour and 15 minutes down, hour back. He goes through this thing. He stays additional. He he goes into this small group session, and and he looks really good. I mean, he really, stick skills were phenomenal. This guy had some really nice things to say about not only his skill set, but also the fact that he was the hardest running. Well, when we moved to the island that we live on, he had been playing rugby for four years. Started when he was five. We moved here when he was nine, and there was no rugby So he's like, I'm going to play lacrosse. And the first year he was terrible. He was terrible. These other kids had been playing. He failed in front of them all the time. And now he's one of their top poles. He's confident. He's also knows that it's fragile and that he keeps working. He comes home every day. So does my young guy. And they grab their sticks on their own and they go throw against a wall a hundred times. They run about a mile and a half with their sticks up and down the street a mile to a mile and a half every single day. I mean, he's confident. He's not arrogant. He knows when he can't do something. He's able to take the critique from the coach. The coach gave him some really good points to work on. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. And this guy did a great job because he also emphasized what he did well, which is a professional approach. And I think that arrogance, it will not drill. Confidence will drill. I'm not afraid to drill because I've already failed in front of my peers hundreds and hundreds of times and i just stand up brush myself off and go okay let's do it again (laughs) and arrogance cannot drill because if they make a mistake they prove to the world they're not as good as they said they are the other thing about this that's tricky is that a confident person is more likely to ask for help they know where their line is and when you reach that line or you even get close to that line now we should get some assistance it's not make-believe Arrogance assumes they can do everything because they don't do anything.
0: Confidence has a process. That's their base. Mm -hmm. That's their foundation, the process. Yeah,
1: so I think that they're diametrically opposed. In humility, man, I just think um, anybody that thinks they're awesome at something just doesn't got a big enough circle. (laughs) You haven't looked around. I mean, there's somebody out there that's phenomenal. And a friend of mine, he sent me a picture of some picture from the 70s of somebody doing something damn similar to something that I do. And I'm like, yeah, duh. Of course. Of course. That doesn't mean what I'm doing isn't relevant. That adds to it. It's it's obviously been done before, like every single movement that a human being's ever made, because leverage is very, very finite in its ability to gain leverage. There is rules to leverage in kinesiology, and those rules are governed by the natural world, and it's very finite. It isn't infinite. It is finite. And so I was ex- totally excited. I'm like, look at that. That's cool. This group of people doing this way back when were not someone that I studied with someone in their line, more or less. You know, he learned from him, who learned from him, who learned from her, who learned from. I've got a line of people that I'm connected to, and these particular guys were not in that line. And that is historically. True, creation of the atom bomb, fire, you know, things because the world is finite. So humility is uh, just like, God damn it, worry less about being known and what your credit and the, all that and just just do your thing and do it well and be willing to say, I changed and this is why. Oops, I made a mistake. That won't happen again. How would you solve this? How would you solve this? How would you solve this? Before we worry about creating something, maybe we should learn how other people have dealt with these things. And that's why, you know, in my program, I say nothing I'm doing is new. This is all big, borrowed and stolen. The difference is, is I actually cite my sources, which not enough firefighters do. I cite my
0: sources. Well, it's big in the academic world, which is what you've been in.
1: Yeah, it's also big in the professional world.
0: Right. Before you start something, you do a literature review and you see what's come before you and then you put that all together in your own words and and build from there.
1: And when you're apprenticing, you do a review of skills and techniques that the industry has decided is valid. You study a jargon, a language designed for a trade. You study that stuff before you ever get to the point where you're calling the shots on a job. That's the process for every single Skill set. The problem in the American Fire Service is that not enough people go to fires. And so the model becomes something different. People making shit up. Like, don't make it up, especially if you don't go to fires. Figure out how people do it and then figure out how to extrapolate that to fit you and your demographics. This is what has to be accomplished. How are you going to do that? Here's five different ways that it's being done. Either pick one that suits you or figure out which combination of things suit you that's the artistry right that's what makes music you know how you interpret those series of notes rests crescendos staccatos time signatures and keys that shit is all finite music is not that random it's not that big there's not a huge scope how you play it is infinite and that's the artistry
0: so where do we stand as a service regarding brotherhood
1: oh we're fucking liars <laughs> Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Brotherhood, you know, we, we loved us some family, but we don't actually do the behavior that relates to family, which is work. Um, Anybody that puts their comfort or success, their ego ahead of change, their, their sweat ahead of effort is no brother of mine or sister of mine. They're frankly the enemy family is built from work. And you, you know, I say this in every class and I'm, I'm not an expert firefighter, but I'm a goddamn expert on what makes family, because my dad is my dad, not because he gave any genetic imprint to me, but because of love and effort. He was there when I was being a knucklehead. He and my mom traversed raising me together, and it's the labor that he put in and that she put in that makes them my mother and my father. It has nothing to do with the blood or because we do the same occupation. Family is made through work. And if you're not willing to do work and unwilling to try new things and and challenge your perspective, then you're you're really not family. By calling someone brother or sister, that's the way we get free T-shirts, free beer and patches. I mean, it's all lip service. And unless you've done the work, in which case it means something. And that is the most powerful kind. So when you have that, that is unstoppable. Um, So there's several things on this. You must first be a professional before you can be familial. You have to act like a professional. And once you do that, then you will build the bonds that are familial. But those things just aren't there because. It isn't just... It exists because we do the same thing. It exists because we have done and continue to do the same things repeatedly. And we are having those internal squabbles. I don't think that's true, boss. I do. This is why. Boss, let's try this. Okay, let's try it. You know, oops, whoever's saying it, I stand corrected. You're right. All right, I get it. Or they're both right this is when we would choose one over the other. That comes from getting out and doing it. And those things, those bonds, uh, first are professional, and then they become familial. And, you know, frankly, as human beings that love us some family, and especially in the fire service, when I hear people say, oh, brother, and sister, this and that, and then they dismiss what one of their brothers or sisters is saying as a problem because they've never had that experience. Where I'm from, if my brother comes to me and says, hey, Aaron, I got a problem, I got his back. We don't need to really even talk about the problem. And as we go forward, we can talk about it, but right here, right now, and if he's asking me to make a compromise in something that I've never thought about, but he's had an experience that I haven't had, then I'm gonna make that compromise because he is my brother. I mean, people wanna be brothers and sisters when it's convenient, I mean, I don't know. I just think that that permeates the fire service, but it also permeates everything else. I mean, because we're we're part of
0: society, so it looks good on a T-shirt and a Facebook status.
1: But yeah, it sure does. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If if you or I were to get messed up on a fire, and there was a memorial, the people that sat in the chairs and critiqued us, and you know the people that behind my back are more than willing to say stuff, but will never even come to you and say, hey, why are you doing this? They're passing judgment without knowing the story and without even knowing exactly what it is they're talking about. They're just giving you opinions and feelings. Those people that are sitting in the chairs watching Real Housewives of Atlanta or New York or whatever they're doing while they're at work, they'll come to the funeral too. And they'll walk up to your relatives and say, I'm sorry, I did everything I can. And I'm not saying this in theory, I've seen it. And really, the reason they're there is there's free beer.
0: Yeah, my next question was if you thought it was genuine or not.
1: No, it's not genuine. It's convenient and it's acceptable. And there's free beer, bro. Be a hell of a party afterwards. The 15 or 20 people that truly give a shit, it's going to mean something to. I mean, it might be a little more than that. you know. Maybe that's a little pessimistic in numbers, but this isn't a theory. I mean, I've seen it happen.
0: Saying it exists and that it occurs isn't saying that it's... All that there is and it's rife but it does exist it does happen oh yeah and that conversation is worth having
1: yeah it's absolutely I mean family is made by work you know we think of it in this terms of inherited it's not inherited it's earned familial bonds are earned they're not inherited I mean there's plenty of families that hate each other they inherited their ties but they don't have to keep them you know before my grandparents had died I hadn't spoken to either side of them for years because one member of both my mother and my father's parents were raging bigots, and it was super difficult. (laughs) So, I mean, we chose not to. You pick your homies, and that doesn't mean it's not familial. So,
0: How would the cadre come together?
1: We have a very specific process. Um, We teach a class for $150. You can come take a train. (laughs) (laughs) That's a joke. We don't do anything like that. What we do is once you've (laughs) taken the class, you can keep coming. You can come to any class that we do. You have access to all the materials that we have, the manuals, the videos, you have access to all that because you've given me your time forever. So what ended up happening is, is the first year I taught solo and there were small classes, I taught four. And then what ended up happening is these same couple of dudes just kept showing up to these classes and eventually. I needed another instructor cause we had 30. I was like, Oh shit. Well, I know this guy. Uh, and my first three instructors that all kind of started helping me at about the same time was, uh, Brendan Grace, Matt Lujan and Mark Maline in no particular order. Actually, I think Mark Maline was the first guy to help me teach a class and another guy named Mike Williams and Mike, is still awesome, still part of the, you know, we we see him, we're happy to see him, uh, but his progression through his career, he's at the kind of the tail end and he just was running out of time and he got in a motorcycle accident and, you know, he's doing really well. He's a super good dude, but nobody that no longer teaches with us is on bad terms, which I think is a, it's telling. Um, there is no division of groups. There's no cadres based off region in our cadre. It's all the same group of people, and everyone's friendly, and everyone works together. And they all know each other. and they know each other's significant others. And they know each other's kids, and they visit like we're going to do a class in California, and three of the guys are staying with one of the guy after the class for the rest of us can't because we've got to get back to work, but we do we do things. and and what has happened is over the time, I, I get to know people as individuals and human beings, and then I get to know their skill set. And once at a certain point, we need a dude, we have this group of people that have been through the class a lot of times, and we need somebody. We're like, all right, you know, who's up? Maggie, Maggie's up. She's out of Portland been through the class, you know, 16 times. She's traveled across the country three times on her own to do it. Who's next up? Whoever, you know, Matt Dunlap, who, whoever's. And then what we do as a cadre as we've grown is the people that have worked most closely, which is usually at least half the cadre. I throw that out. We start talking. What's their strong points? What's their weak points? What do we have to grow them with? What do they bring? What I really like this guy because he's got a softer voice. Than Luhon and I. I like her because she's she's re- she's really analytical about the technique. She can really explain the fine points of the technique. I like you know. And and what do you guys think? Oh, this this guy this this whatever blah blah blah. We talk about it, and then we bring somebody on. And I have a kind of a limited number that I can manage. So the number of instructors is pretty fixed within one or two because the big deal is touches. You gotta get everybody the ball. And then as we move through, as the, as we've hit a decade, we have kind of a senior instructor, unofficial senior. And those are, you know, the the Nate Jamisons, the Brendan Graces, the Matt Lujans, uh, the guys that have been around for the longest. and And we have succession plans. If I get fucked up, this is what I expect. Because everyone's friends, everyone agrees on this. And we recognize that this tribe, in order to maintain this level of function, must have these informal, formal processes. But there is no shortcut. It isn't about who's the coolest. It's about who is the best fit. And in order for me to bring anyone on, I have to trust them. I have to trust that they're not going to be like, well, so-and-so likes to do this, but this is how I, nope. We're all on the same message and that, and you've done the program, you know, no matter what instructor you go with, there's different voices and there's different personalities, but the mission and the method and the ways that things are answered and the way that things are drilled and the tone in which the drills are conducted, for lack of a better term, the teaching model is consistent. And that consistency is the byproduct of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And there is no fucking shortcut to that. So the thing that if you were going to ask me, what is the thing that I am the most proud of? It is the cadre. These are quality human beings. Not one of them would I not trust with my kids. Not one of them, if I had a problem, would have any issue helping me out. Not one of them would has ever put themselves ahead of the mission. We've had difficult conversations. Hey, man, I, you can't do this. This is why. Fields, have you thought about this? Fuck, I haven't. You're right. Let's change it. You're right. Thank you. That whole process, that to me is the thing that I'm the most proud of. And the second thing is the community. The fact that so many people have taken their time and given me an opportunity to share with them something and to have them come back and to have this grassroots thing grow up with people at every level from firefighter up to chief that's willing to listen and go gotcha right in this we're going to take this we're going to change modify this we're going to do this we're going to ignore this part this is why and to have that whole thing in the community of people that has grown up is unbelievable. Let me give you an example. Yesterday as I was getting off work, I went and visited a friend of mine named Pete. Pete's wife brought him to Seattle for a he works in North Carolina. Uh, he's been through the program three or four times, I can't recall. His wife emails me and it's like, Hey, would you be willing to have coffee? Yeah, fuck yeah I would. So he's in the coffee shop, I show up in the morning, we sit and have coffee. I haven't seen him in I don't know, eight months. So that's cool, man that's the cool part. Those are the things I'm the proudest of besides the job stuff, you know, the success at the job level, which is clearly the primary mission. Um, but the secondary stuff is all, all of that. And, you know, I feel like in my own little worldview, I've been able to try to leave a mark that leaves it better than I found it. Some of that has to do with hose. And I think some of that has to do with some more stuff that's a little more difficult to address because sometimes it strikes at the very foundation of what we hold as our traditions.
0: Is the way that your cadre has come together, is that transferable into how we can look to hire firefighters?
1: Hiring, that's beyond my scope. Building internal, yes. I've had chiefs email me, say, you know what? When my guys said they wanted to go to this class, I thought complete and utter bullshit. He's like but i don't know what's happened these guys come back from the program and they're drilling and they're sharing they're not lording and hoarding they're sharing and they're out drilling and all of a sudden the station that was a station of i quoting a particular chief ne'er-do-wells and malcontents is now one of the cleanest functioning groups i have because these guys three of which did your class are now sharing these skill sets with other people and in the station and they're working on it. And he's like, it's not only the skill, it's the model of exchange. I think in the fire service, we have this dysfunction. And I think it's very similar to abuse. My job is to smack you. When you come in, I'm going to beat you down. For a lot of our fire departments, some of our fire departments aren't this way, but a lot of them are. Shut up. I'll tell you every fucking thing you need. I'm I'm experienced. You're not. Your opinion is not a value. Shut up. Ask me a question. Don't ask me. I'll tell you everything you need to know. That's like every time your kid says anything, you smack them. And if you smack them enough, eventually they'll shut up. But what are they going to do to their kids? I'm going to smack them. And what I want is a community that behaves like a group of professionals, which is like, okay, so that is our tradition. That's where we've come from. Don't do it. Be a fucking adult. Stop doing it don't do it to each other be better and realize the failure point of that and if you let people think and you say listen i got some experience i got real experience so now ask me some questions and we'll we'll talk it through and we'll talk it out right here and then on the fire ground there ain't going to be no questions when i call this this is what we're going to do and if you see something because we've talked about it and I trust that you understand what I'm expecting. If you see something, now you saying something isn't a threat because we're all going in the same direction. Where I want my questions is when there's, it's time appropriate. right? And it's okay to question. It's okay to say, I don't understand this. Can you explain it? What is not okay is for the so-called senior people to lord and hoard their experience, and that creates divisiveness and is destructive.
0: They're afraid of being exposed.
1: Maybe, or maybe they're really, really good. That's absolutely a possibility. But maybe they're really, really good, and this is just what was done to them, and they're just reliving the old habits. See, the problem with the fire service, I, one of them, I think we want to be different. This is different. This is different somehow. It's not different. Quit saying that. It's the same. It's the same as everything else because it's made up of the same people and the same weaknesses and the same failures and the same strengths. The mistakes that are made are from the same point of motivation that other things are made. And the sooner we recognize that and we approach it on a, I don't like to use, I mean, the term is kind of PC, but the holistic, you can't understand the micro if you don't understand the macro. You can't address it. I'll be honest with you, and this is also not, makes me sometimes not popular. I'm, I'm always befuddled because I hear older firefighters saying that young firefighters are too sensitive, but it's the older firefighter that's getting upset about being asked a question. (laughs) That seems weird to me. That doesn't, that's not jiving with what they're saying. And just like anything... When you're new, you're going to ask questions, sometimes the same one in several different ways. And when you're experienced, you understand it. But that doesn't mean you can't quit talking about it. Because you and I understand it doesn't mean that the person that just came out of drill school is going to. And my job description is to make sure that they understand it. And that means I'm going to have to have the same conversation multiple times throughout my career. I'm going to have to have the same set of conversations with every single rookie that I'm ever going to have. And that conversation is going to feel like Groundhog Day. But every once in a while, somebody's going to ask you something or say something in a perspective that you don't have. And you're going to go, oh, I never thought of it from that angle. Or, oh, that's a nice way to say that. I like that. I might use that. Once I've used it three times, it's now mine. No, I'm kidding. You know, and and <laughs> I do that, if you think about the program, intentionally I have this conversation when I discuss the law of Hugh. A nine-year-old figured out the secret of the nozzle forward because he just sat and listened to people having conversations, not even conversations directed at him. Like I've mentioned, I don't talk fire around my kids, but if you come to Seattle and you're visiting me and they come home from school, we might talk fire while they're around. So they just sit and listen and watch. They don't have the dogma of this is how we do it, kids, sit down and shut up. And I encourage critical thought. So they're sitting there listening. He's sitting there listening. He's like, man, the secret's halvesies. You guys just do halvesies. I got this figured out. I'm going to go ride my bicycle. Your movement is half a full stride. You move host from and to the middle of the distance between the two friction points. When you're making the stretch, it's half. When you're you know, forwards or backs or whatever, I mean, every piece of the curriculum breaks down into one of three choices and halvesies, And it, <laughs> and that's the Rubik's cube. And and I sat there after he said that and he explained it in a little more detail than I did. And I'm like, holy shit, this is what happened when you allow someone to think, which is what I had done with that same stuff with regarding breaking buildings down and the strategies of hose movement was based off something that was given to me from a guy that was pre-SCBA and when I went back and taught that to him, because he was in the room, his comment was, this is amazing. This is a great way to think about it. And I'm like, you taught it to me. But instead of lording and hoarding his power and his knowledge and his experience, he encouraged his people to think. He taught them why they were doing what they were doing, how they would do it, when they would do it. And he encouraged us to think and didn't tell us what path we were going to take. He Let us think it through. And then told us the path that he's going to choose because it's the what he's because of this, this, and this. He was giving us experience. And without that medium of exchange, without that common language, that jargon, and that skill set that's repeatable, there is no medium of exchange. How do you have a conversation about something in which the thing itself is defined in multiple ways? You first have to define your terms, which in the fire service takes hours. So there is no medium of experience exchange if you don't all speak the same language and have the same skill set and the same expectation of outcome. And that ability to let people process information and to take them along the path is the mark of a true professional, you know, to be able to steer people into decisions that they maybe don't have the experience to make. But once you're done steering them, they understand when and why that's something that'll grow.
0: And they make their own choice to change.
1: Yes, exactly, they can make one that's deliberate. Yeah, change for change's sake is is silly. Change for a purpose, for an objective, and a purposeful alteration is the job. That's what's supposed to happen. I mean, I think a lot of times, Scott, I think folks with me specifically, I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe you would know better, but I think people that have taken the class and know me personally, have a different interpretation of me than people that have watched me from afar. I think the thing that a lot of folks miss is that, one, I've never pretended to be original. Two, I'm hardworking and I'm self-critical. And three, my whole program is based around failure. Every mistake that I talk about I've made, and this is what I've done to fix it. But. You know, the thing that I think sometimes people are uncomfortable with is a certain degree of honesty. I'm going to assume that people I'm speaking with are an adult, which means we can have a conversation that's difficult, not spend time avoiding difficult conversations. And, you know, you've listened to me talk. Have I ever critiqued an individual? No, Uh, I will critique behavior, I will address behavioral patterns that are negative, but I will not call an individual out. I'm just not my style. And I think a lot of the people that resist and have problems with me are because they identify with the behavior that I'm discussing. I'm not talking about them specifically. I'm talking about a series of behaviors and they recognize themselves in those behaviors. And instead of going, oh shit, I never thought of that. God darn it, I gotta fix this they go i don't like him because he's too brash
0: it's threatening right
1: they feel like they personally got threatened so they personalized something that was a professional critique
0: i would agree with that what you're saying about the way people may see you and let me just echo it by saying i've really delved into watching jordan peterson talk quite a bit and i listen to sam harris quite a bit as well when i watch either of them be interviewed you can tell the people that have come in to interview them with an ideology and a dogma that they're just trying to maintain and paint either of them in a certain light. They haven't looked at the hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of hours of lecture. They haven't done the lit review. Right. They haven't taken the time to sit and listen for a long time and if they had, they probably wouldn't be asking half the questions they're asking. And they're both very patient with, like you said, Groundhog Day, with restating their stance and defining terms and having an adult conversation. And they're very patient with the people they're speaking with when they wouldn't have to be. They could get very frustrated. But it's one thing to come in with a preconceived lens yep. and bring that person into the conversation through. You're not going to have a conversation. You're literally just going to bark at them.
1: Right. And sound bites, man. It's, it's just sound bites. I mean, I think the difference from now... To 10 years ago, is that enough of what I'm doing has been validated in multiple places. And frankly, enough firefighters, fire officers, and fire chiefs have actually sit and listened to what I'm saying. And I know for a fact that a lot of people that, or some people, not a lot, and fewer today than before, people that would come to our program will come because they want to prove it wrong and they want to validate what they think. And when they leave, that's not the vibe. It's usually like, man, I, I mean, I had guys tell me point blank, I came here cause I wanted to prove, and I came away within the first 15 minutes going, oh shit, I was wrong. And to me, that's the mark, that there is awesome. That's why when people are like, oh, they might not be totally into it, just be prepared. I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's great. Because if we come away and they're still not totally sure but they understand the position that I'm operating from. That's a win. I I don't think for a fact that everybody likes me. That would be impossible. But I do think that people that have done the program will typically say, he's ethical, and he's hardworking, and he's honest.
0: And he's done his homework.
1: And he's done his homework, yeah. he, He knows what he's talking about. Yeah, Fields might not be a guy that I like to hang out with. He made fun of soccer. And I like to drink tea, but uh, you know, I mean,
0: and he never tucks his shirt in (laughs)
1: and he never tucks his shirt in. Yeah. And the other, the other, yeah, that becomes like, Oh, I don't think you're professional. You're not wearing a closed toe shoe. (laughs) Okay. So I'm in boots for the record. So if anybody's listening to this, I'm in boots for my normal work. Then I go outside and I spend 22 hours on my feet, sometimes 12 days in a row. The reason I wear flip-flops is the same reason that I'm barefoot most of the time. You know who doesn't have back problems? Me. (laughs) If I wore closed-toe shoes for the rest of the time that I was teaching, I would be uncomfortable and I would have back problems. And their comfort with my footwear doesn't outweigh my comfort of foot. They're my feet. Maybe people should not worry about my feet. Like, I wear the appropriate equipment at the appropriate time. It's like the mark of professional is being good, not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not uh, you know, no, oh, you you looks like you missed a spot shaving. Mm-hmm, you're right, I probably did. It's uh three o'clock in the morning my time, and I'm standing here talking to you about shaving. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think enough people have heard the message, and I think the other one, which is a lot of it, my wife would tell you that I'm intense. I also have a sense of humor, and I don't take myself overly seriously. Oh, it's key. I mean, I laugh at myself and, you know, you've been through the program. There's a lot of jokes. There's a lot of fun being had, though at times I use a four-letter word. I use it like a linguist. It's an exclamation point. I'm never derogatory and I'm never vulgar. In fact, I'm a prude. I am way uncomfortable with the level of disclosure that most people are okay about their romantic interludes. Most modern society is too okay with everybody talking about stuff that's meant to be between two people.
0: Or three or four or five, whatever, just keep it in the bedroom. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't need details. I don't need details. <laughs> Are you in love? Yeah, yes. Yeah. With who? With him or her? I don't care who. You're in love. That's awesome. Say no more. I support love. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I don't want to know details about anybody. It's not dignified and it's not respectful to your partner. Uh, So I'm a prude. So my language choices, my wife always laughs, we've been married for 25 years. And I can't even get you to hold my hand in public. We did when we got married, dear. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, it's like.
0: It it did occur.
1: It did occur. (laughs) Um, But uh, my language is not ever derogatory and it's never mean. It's never crass. And I use it as an explanation point. And the reason is, is because what it does to the brain. The fire service is in an environment that is supposed to be more blue collar and in appropriate times. Occasional four letter word isn't a big deal because whoop it makes a point. That's why the military does it, because the part of the brain that processes that information is different. Than Wakes the part- you up. Yeah. So everything that I'm doing is on purpose. And if I'm going to an environment that is socially more conservative, then I don't use them. I don't use four-letter words. I had a friend of mine once say, man, you dropped too many four-letter words. And I'm like, on purpose, which means I can choose to not to, which I do on a regular basis, especially when I'm going to areas that are socially a little more conservative. Okay. I'm not going to piss you off, but I am going to challenge you. And I'm going to make you think about it. And we're going to push a little bit. And if you're totally comfortable sitting there, then you're not hearing what I'm saying. So-
0: Words will also lose their impact and punch if they are just littered throughout Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's crass. It shows a poor grasp of language, right? You should be able to articulate yourself in multiple ways and be conscientious to the subtlety of your people hearing you. I mean, language is a tool set. I don't do finish work with a framing hammer, but at times I, I, also, <laughs> I also don't frame with a finishing hammer.
0: And we open doors with the irons. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I don't do that because I'm on the engine. I let the truck. <laughs> let the
0: truck. Well, we're, we're jack of all trades. That's what we have to do. So we're, we yep. do a bit of everything. But tell me how the fire engineering bread and butter operation DVD came about.
1: A, a chief of mine, uh, Phil Jose, was making um, some videos with Penwell. And the makers uh, asked that Jose has retired recently. Um, and they asked somebody, Hey, we're going to redo these bread and butter ones. Do you know anybody? And Phil's like, yeah, I can call him Phil now. Cause he's retired. Uh, chief Joe's that's more comfortable. Uh, chief Joe said, yeah, I do know somebody give him a call. And so they called me and we sat and talked. And my first thing is why are you replacing them? They were pretty good. You know who made them? There's this guy named Andy Fredericks. I don't know if I want to replace Andy Fredericks. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a that's tough a hard act to replace. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Did you realize yeah. that 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 guy had a huge impact on my career, and uh, I don't know if I want to replace him. And they said we we're going to replace him, and so I I kind of laid out what I'd do, and they said let's do it. And and the, the cool thing I think is is ah, man, it's kind of tough because it is what it is, and it was going to be done, and. I don't know that it's the best video of all time. It was early and it's the first time I'd ever done anything like that. I mean, I've never watched it except in pieces because I took notes on the pieces after I'd done that I wasn't as comfortable with and I went back and I, how would I redo this? But I will say this and, and for all the people out there that if anyone listens to this, that knew Andy, I'm not saying at any point that I was the one to do it, but I am saying that I will do the best damn job of replacing something or building on something that didn't need redoing. Uh, But someone was going to do it. And I wanted to make sure that at least whoever would do it understood the shoes they were walking in, not from a superficial perspective. I mean, there's a lot of people that have Andy Frederick stickers on their helmets. That doesn't mean they've read what Andy Frederick wrote. It's a sticker. And that sticker implies membership into a certain sector, but I've asked people with those stickers. So you've read, remember in this, when he said this and they're like, Oh, I haven't read that. I'm like, I don't have a single Andy Frederick sticker and I've read everything. And I think that's actually what Andy would want. I don't know him personally, but I do know people that taught with him, that have been through my program, that I've become friends with, that I've met outside of that have never been through my program, but knew him or taught with him and know me. And I think they would concur because it's something that we've talked about.
0: Are you in talks with any major publications to have your skills put in a recruit level text?
1: Yep. So we are working on a, a manual and we are doing all the editing and I'm getting tech writers and and I'm not sure how it's going to come out yet, but folks that have had the class will have access to it. And we're probably, I got four months from being done uh, and it's got everything that I talk about up to this point, skills, drills. Uh, the drills are, are being built on, but the the, the kind of the fire behavior component, the tactical hose deployment section, the, the moving of hand lines, the handling of hand lines, the, the algorithms, all that stuff is in there. And then we have some videos that we've made that anyone that's taken the class has access to. Um, and what we also have, I have a couple of the folks in the cadre that are really good and they're working on using previous examples from other fire departments with our skills to show 1001-1003 compliancy. So our skills are tested skills uh, for firefighter one and two in hundreds of fire departments, and my own uses some of them. You know, we're not totally implemented in my own fire department, but we're a large one, and, and you know, recruit schools are doing it and how we're doing in-service training and, and all that, and we have standards written. Jones and Bartlett approached me, and they wanted to put some stuff in there, and so with some conversations about, you know, making sure that I kind of get the final edit and that's supposed to happen yet, but I haven't seen the material yet. There's some stuff that there's some individual skills that they're going to be putting in there. So, you know, I'm not opposed to sharing as long as I'm in control of how it's done, you know, because I've taken hundreds and hundreds of photos. I've written documents for this stuff multiple times. And just through that process, I know what needs to be said, especially in the written format. Which is different than the verbal format, and I found it interesting when I was talking with Jonathan Bartlett. Originally, they had me get on the phone. We did this group conversation on the phone, and they had their tech writers there. Uh, in this case, not one of these tech writers were firefighters; they were tech writers. And when I went into the dialect difference, they all they, they start laughing, and the lead tech writer literally starts going, "See, see." See, we've been saying this for years. We're reading your stuff, and we can't figure out what the hell you're talking about because one person's saying one thing, and another person is describing the exact same phenomenon with another buzzword. And I'm like, technically, that's called a slang. And she starts laughing, and she's like, that's right. (laughs) Finally. She's like, I – and I said – I told her we were joking, and I don't remember exactly how I joked. And I said, I know. I know. You thought that the whole fire service was completely illiterate. And she started laughing, and she's like, see – I think it's funny because people that actually write books, technically, technical books, recognize how confused we we are, uh, but because they're not firefighters and they can't know what they're talking about, you don't have no idea. You've never been down, you know, well, she might know something about the English language since the English language is her business. And for the record, every day she goes to work, she does the English language. Every day my wife goes to work, she does the decimal points and the mathematics Everyday firefighters go to work, they might not accomplish their primary mission. So a part of our mission is practice. How do we accomplish our mission every day as we practice? And then when we have an event, we gain experience because we have a we have a matrix and an outline or a mental roadmap, however you want to talk about it, to hang that experience on and a filter that allows us to process in a process of evaluation. You know, I mean, I got called in a private email to one of my chiefs from somebody in my agency, I don't know who it is, from an an email that was non-traceable and it was just spewing angst and I got included in it. And I'm like, that's super brave. Like, why not have a conversation? Why not come up and without cussing and swearing saying, ask some questions. Why are we doing this? What's going on? You know, coward. Is it difficult to be critical of a chief? Yes. If you're worried about punitive, yes. But I'm just a firefighter. I I know for a fact probably who this person was, but based off their uh, exceptional use of the English language and their catchphrases, um, I figured out who it was because I've had conversations with them in passing and they use those catchphrases. So typically speaking, if you're trying to be cryptic, you should probably choose another semantical track. But nevertheless, uh, you know, and I don't I don't hate them. Whatever, man, whatever, whatever. But just come talk to me before you go all hooly and start yelling and screaming and acting like a child and throwing a temper tantrum. Maybe you come and act like an adult. And if you're willing to have a, a conversation, I mean, we can talk and we can agree to disagree. They may not feel like their primary mission is practice. They may not feel like their primary mission is having a standard to doing it. Well, they would be deviating from every other performance-based occupation in the world. So they would be the outlier. Apparently they're superhuman. That might be, I'm not, I want those things. But more importantly, I want the ability to have honest, respectful conversation, not something, well, one, it was poorly written, My 10 year old is a little further along and my 14 year old would take it apart dramatically. Secondly, it's childish. That's not the way that professionals behave, not the way that adults behave. So, I mean, if they want a critique, I'm willing to take it, but I'm not going to listen to a bunch of begging nonsense of screaming and yelling and acting like an infant. That's
0: childish. I've talked to people about rumors about that too. Why ask someone else about someone else? If you really want to know the answer to the question, then you should go directly to them. I mean, if you feel embarrassed by going directly to them, then you probably shouldn't be asking the question.
1: Well, the easier thing to do is to write an email in which there is no rebuke so that you're right instead of actually having a conversation, which maybe your position gets changed. I worked with a a captain the other day that, you know, frankly, didn't understand a lot of what we were doing and why and where it was going. And he's like, do you mind if we sit down and talk today about this? And I'm like, you bet. And we sat and we talked and great dude, great guy. And at the end of it, he's like, man, I really appreciate your ability to have for me to ask pointed questions and you to explain it in a way that not only do I understand, but I can agree with. He's like, this is a lot different than hearing half stories through the grapevine. Like, absolutely. And I said, you know what I appreciate? I appreciate the fact that you came to me like an adult and was comfortable asking the question that I may have reacted to in the same way as this person that sent this email, as a raging lunatic. There was a potential of that, but n- neither of it happened. And we came away as a fire department that much better. And we came away as individuals. I'm better at explaining my position because I had to ex- explain it to him. He's better at hearing it and interpreting it. And now he's. He understands why we're saying certain things and what those things mean and where they fit and how that jives with his experience. And all of a sudden, that what we don't know is no longer a threat because we're not afraid of it. We're not afraid of the ignorance. And that's a professional interaction. That's also an adult interaction. And I think those two things are almost synonymous. When someone says act like a professional, what they're almost saying is act like an adult.
0: So you were acknowledged as Seattle Firefighter of the Year by your peers in 2011, and then you mm-hmm. received the Engineering International Society of Fire Service Instructors' George D. Post Instructor of the Year Award in 2017. So mm-hmm. what was your initial reaction when you found out about those? Okay, when my chief called me,
1: my my chief chief called me at the station in 2011, uh, it was about shift change. And <laughs> that it comes over the comes over the lab, the phone rings, the Lieutenant answers it. He gets on the phone and he's like, Fields, the chief, the chief, chief, the big chief is on the phone for you. I'm like, Oh, what did I do? Right. <laughs> I tried, I'm running, I'm running through my brain. Like yeah. what? Oh, why is, I mean, uh, you know, we're a medium sized, medium, large department. Uh, you know, we don't, I don't know everybody, um, you know, that kind of thing. And, Why is the chief calling me before eight o'clock? And so we get on the phone and he says this. He, He told me that I won this award. And my initial reaction was, well, wait a minute. I know some people that have done some pretty good things. That was my initial reaction. And I didn't verbalize it, but my first thing is what happened that I was recognized more than them? I wish it could have been a community award. Really. Uh, I was dumbstruck, actually. And then on the drive home, I was humbled by the fact that people took their time to nominate me for my labor. It was judged by my peers, and it was judged in the face of, especially at that point, some people who felt like that email before that I mentioned there were people in our agency that are like, what the, you know, who is blah, 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 blah. And my peers decided, and, and, you know, my, some bosses and some chiefs and all that decided that this was worth recognition. And, and I think at that point in our assimilation of these skills, it wasn't as universal. It wasn't as kind of overall accepted. You know, there was people that were outright hostile, so um I was I was kind of humbled by that uh quite a quite a bit and and of the things that I've received for recognition one I, I don't do things for that and fundamentally I'm a little uncomfortable with that kind of attention because that kind of attention is way outside my cultural experience my my household was how would you say it's more stoic and you know you're awesome wasn't said a whole lot uh and so that kind of thing i'm you know it's a character flaw or or, or a weakness in that i don't think i react in a balanced way to that kind of accolade i think i tend towards the self-deprecation
0: but on a larger scale is it important to allow yourself to be recognized by your peers as an important part of leading and fostering traditions and growth, like
1: yeah, I I, I suppose I never really thought of that and from that angle. I kind of as far as I've ever gotten is um, I'm uncomfortable with it. It's pretty cool uh, that people are recognizing the labor and the effort and the honesty uh, that I try to approach my endeavor with. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess I think for people that are looking and saying, oh, no change ever occurs. I guess you're right. It, it can kind of be that uh, this mark of you, you can make a difference and you can do it pretty much without being primetime. I mean, I'm definitely not, I mean, when people are looking through your podcast, this is going to be one that a lot, there's going to be a fair percentage of people that are going to be like, who, what? I've never even heard of this. So, I mean, I'm definitely not you know, on par with a lot of the the people instructing, you know, for various reasons. But one of the ways is way I go about sharing my message is through word of mouth and direct contact. Um, so, uh, yeah, man. I guess I guess it, I've never thought of that, Scott. I, I think that's a good that's a good perspective.
0: Really, I can't thank you enough. This has been phenomenal. It's been always a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Yeah, man, my my pleasure. I mean, it it's nice to have conversations that revolve around the fire service that don't that revolve around the world, right? That, that we are not talking about fire service. We're talking about life. My upbringing has led me to be able to look at things from somebody else's position. My whole life has been about weeding through the differences between the Polynesian, the family from Tonga, the family from Vietnam and the family from North Africa. And the family from you know the rural south and the Japanese family weed through all the differences and get to what is the core and what do they all share? I feel like that is a fairly unique skill set that is learned, not inherent. Yeah, man. I mean that's it's an important piece because that's why I can evaluate without prejudice other perspectives, you know, and then look at them and go, yeah, I, I know this doesn't work because I've been steamed by a a 30 degree fog. I know that doesn't work. Tried it, didn't work out. But here's where that comes from. And this is why I'm not mad at you for teaching that because it was taught to you. Now, now that you've been shown another way, now's the question of what are you gonna do? And that's gonna be the mark of your character.